All right, welcome to uh, the Chance of Gaming podcast, episode 111. I know we have some new people listening for our interview with Volca, and uh, yeah, we hope you kind of listen to us, and uh, hopefully you'll listen all the way through and enjoy what we're doing, come back and all that. Uh, I'm Adam, and uh, with me always is Richard and Roy. Hey everybody, this is Rich. Uh, I just wanted to say hi real quick to a listener named Noah. It's kind of funny story. My daughter was in D.C. a couple weeks ago and was just randomly talking about podcasts. And the guy that she was talking to is a listener of ours. So hello, Noah wow. in D.C. Actually, he's probably didn't live in D.C., but he went to camp in D.C. with my daughter. So cool. Wow, that yeah. is really weird. <laughs> it, it, it is. Talk about small world. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah all right and uh and i'm roy um and uh i live in west michigan in holland michigan holland so, michigan i can never remember yep. that when people ask me like where's roy from i'm just like michigan it's like i know richard lives <laughs> in st louis roy lives in that's michigan. people everywhere yeah the whole state that's where he lives yeah right. <laughs> yeah so uh, the first thing we do in our little podcast is generally we talk about like what we're playing and uh, yeah we just kind of go in detail we tell you about these games and whatnot and Rich is gonna take us away with a game I am personally dying to play. Yeah, so I actually got to play a lot of games the last couple weeks. I think of the last podcast I said I had only played one game in two weeks and it's the opposite this time. I played a lot. Um, I played a few that I've talked about before, so I don't want to mention them too much, like One Deck Dungeon, my Star Wars RPG group. is. We've been playing together for a long time, and we're actually about to wrap it up because a couple of them are moving off to Germany, so we're coming to a conclusion there. Uh, we played some more Time Stories, much better experience than this time than I had last time. We played actually the second module called A Prophecy of Dragons, and we all thought it was probably the best one we had played. Uh, played some Star Realms with my daughter that I love, and I got to play, finally, not just by myself, but with another person, got to play at any cost Mets. So do you guys know much about that game? I know I want it. No. <laughs> it's really good. Um, I like it a lot. I um, It is uh, it takes place at Mets, 1870, Franco-Prussian War, um, and the map is beautiful. It's 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 the system is called I think it's called Broken Sword System. There's some other bat, some other games in the same system that I want to try. One of which takes place around here. It's uh, I think at Battle of the Ozarks, which isn't too far from St. Louis. So, um, but yeah, it's a good game. I just I played with uh, Mitch, who's a listener and a friend of mine. And wait, wait, um, hold, hold on a second. You said yeah. All right, this is this is Mets, right? This is the Franco-Prussian War. Correct. Okay, yes. which, which probably did not happen around St. Louis, right? No, that one did not happen around St. Okay. Louis, but there's another game in the same system. Oh, okay, sorry, my called, bad. Called uh, Thunder at <laughs> the Ozarks, and that my, one takes place around I'm, St. Louis. I missed that. I looked down yeah. and was not paying attention, <laughs> and like, wait a minute, the Franco-Prussian War yeah. was in St. Louis? That would be cool. So, no, okay. this one takes place at uh, and, and, and around Mets. So uh, we just played uh, the small intro scenario. Uh, it's, it's a chit-draw game. It's got some um, some interesting mechanics where when you're moving your forces into battle, you can either accept an ex aggressive posture, which lets you do more, or a defensive posture, uh, which doesn't allow you to do as much, but allows you to move along the roads better. 
Um, the one thing that I probably learned from playing this game is that ravines are death for artillery. In this game, you can't take your artillery across a ravine, so there's a lot of maneuver to get your forces into position before you ever get into a battle. Um, and that's one of the things I like about historical gaming is that part of it is pretty accurate. A lot of times it wasn't so much about the battlefield. It was about what the generals did to get their forces into battle before they ever made contact. And I think this does a pretty good job of, of uh, showing that. So great game. I loved it a lot. What, what side did you play? Uh, I played the French and I had to take, Excellent. there were, I think there were three towns, um, that you had to take for like an overwhelming victory. I managed to eke out one of them on the last roll for what was considered a minor victory, according to the rule book. So, okay. And who publishes it? Uh, at any cost is, let me look, I think it's an MMP game. Yeah. I'm looking at it. No, it's a GMT GMT game. Ah, okay. Yep. Now, now you mentioned one deck dungeon. I do know there is an app and a version yes. of it on steam for 10 yes. bucks. And it is really good. I love the Steam version. I like that's if I'm sitting at my laptop and I've just got a little time to kill, I'll fire up One Deck Dungeon and play that real quick. Hmm. Um, but we've got the actual uh, physical game too that I like to play with my eight-year-old. She loves that game. All right, cool. What else yeah. have you been playing? Well, I got to play Gloomhaven finally, and I didn't have to buy it, which is even better. If you can get someone else to plunk <laughs> down the hundred twenty dollars and still play, it's win-win for me so uh we did get to play it we played it um just the the first mission and we're probably actually going to go back and start over again because we're just learning how to play but um yeah it's 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 hard to describe what the mechanics are because it's not like anything i've ever seen before i guess it's hand manipulation where you have cards in your hand that you can use for actions and you discard them but then you can pull back out of your discard pile you can do certain things that pull out of your discard pile and put into like a I'm sure I'm using the terms wrong and people are going to say no you're wrong but there's one pile that you can pull back out of and another pile that they're gone for the rest of the encounter um, and basically that acts as a timer so when you completely run out of cards uh, the the encounter's over for you win or lose so it's interesting I like it um, we we didn't quite wrap our head around the mechanics yet so we're definitely going to get back to it and play it some more um but yeah, got to play Gloomhaven finally. It's it's been the talk of the town for what a couple years now. It's been out, but it's yeah. been hard to find. So yeah. <clears throat> what did you think of the uh, real estate that the game takes up? So, um, because we had just pulled the game out of the box, we had stuff sort of spread all over the place. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I think if you take all the stuff you're not using and take it off the table completely, then it's not that bad. But there's just so much there, and especially when you're new to the game, you're pulling stuff out of the box and trying to find the right stuff. So that does take up a lot of space. But the actual board is rather small. It's made up of, if you've played Imperial Assault, it's kind of like that, where you take different boards and you put them together to make your dungeon. Uh, and then the actual player character areas are, you know, maybe a couple foot by a foot is all the room you need, so... I think it's going to fit on, on most tables. A friend of mine, I know he did put an extra leaf in his table for just for that, and it fit on there. It was a little tight, but it was fine. All right. Yeah, I've just I've seen it in the shop, and it took up yeah kind of a lot of it a lot of area, you know. Yeah. 
and that's been kind of like the the only complaint I've heard about it is it's like a lot of record keeping and like a lot of fiddly bits that you know you kind of have to fool with. But yeah, there is there's um they've got some some cardboard pieces that help you keep track of the enemies and everything. So you know you've got three characters and you've got lots of different enemies and they're not all. It's not like a lot of games where you're facing 12 guys, but one hit takes them all out. These guys actually have, you know, a decent amount of hit points or whatever. So there's a little card that you can drop damage tokens. You don't have to put them on the board. You can put them on different slots on this card and everything. Again, when you first play it, there's a lot to kind of wrap your mind around. I think it's going to get quicker and easier as we play it more, though. Hmm. All right. What else have you had? Uh, I played Pavlov's House, which was a Kickstarter that I ordered last year and just arrived a couple weeks ago. It's it's a solitaire game. It lists as one to three players, and they do have rules in there for one, two, or three players. Although I would say it's just a solitaire game, which is cool for solitaire war gamers because there's a lot of games out there that are listed for two to four and then have separate solitaire rules. This is definitely a solitaire game that has some options to play with multiplayer. But it's a game that takes place over the Battle of Stalingrad. And what's really interesting about this is the board has three different sections. You've actually got one room called Pavlov's House. And then you've got a larger area that shows um, basically the German forces surrounding the house. And then an even larger area that shows more or less the whole city where you've got, you know, German bombers coming in, you've got anti-aircraft guns that you're trying to shoot them down, you're trying to get supplies into the house. So it takes place on three different levels all at the same time. I've never seen a game that does that before, and this one does it really well. I like it a lot. It's um, it's a bit of a, like a sort of almost like a tower defense game in that they're always coming for you and always coming for you and always coming for you and beating down your defenses and you're trying to shore things up while the enemy is pouring in on you. But if you've read about the Battle of Stalingrad, that's very much how it was for the Russians. So I played it a couple times. I lost both times, but uh, for a solitaire game, uh, you know, you don't want it to be too easy. So, you know, I was reminded today that the largest group of people on board game geek are solitaire players. It doesn't surprise me. I, I, I know there are there's groups on Facebook, there's groups on BGG, there's solitaire gaming pork uh, podcasts, and um, there's a lot of talk about it. I know even some of the like the big names in the business have said some, you know, kind of talk down about solitaire gamers. And I think for most of us, and I've talked to other people that I think feel the same way, it's not that we. Per, I would always prefer to play face to face with someone, but solitary is always a nice option because I'm always with myself. So there are good games that are solitaire. There are two-player games that can be, be played well solitaire. Personally, I would always prefer face-to-face with one or more other players, but I like having good solitaire options available. I would much prefer to play a solitaire board game than to play like a computer war game or something, which is really just another way to play solitaire. Hmm. Interesting. And then finally today, just this afternoon, I got to play a game that I got for my birthday a couple months ago. The first time I've actually played it, though, Trenton 1776. And it's by Worthington Games. Uh, I've got one or two other games by them. Um, 
it's obviously takes place 1776 American Revolution so Americans and Brits you got Cornwallis and Washington it's a block war game so you know I can see what my forces are my opponent in this case my daughter cannot she can just see the blocks and doesn't know what's behind them um, we both had a lot of fun it's it's light if you're not into heavy games this one is a lot of fun and the rules, it's very, very quick to learn. The turns go very fast. It's literally, I move my forces. If there's a battle, we do it. You move your forces. If there's a battle, we do it. Um, and the game was, we played a half game, which is like 12 or 14 turns long. And the turns go really fast. It was a lot of fun. So I played the Brits. My Hessians and my artillery were murderous upon the Americans. And I was able to beat my 17-year-old daughter at a war game. But she had fun, <laughs> and if I'm playing a war game with my 17-year-old daughter, it's a good day. Yeah, that yeah, I agree. <laughs> I imagine that isn't something that happens that often. No. Yeah. Uh, I guess we get to my turn, and the only thing I managed to play was today. I, play, I spent about mm, five hours, four or five hours, playing uh, Combat Commander. Are you guys familiar with that at all? I am familiar with it. I've never played it, and it's it's one of those games that I really, really want to play. So I'd love to hear your experience with it. It sounds right. like Hex Encounters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's actually it? card-based, isn't it? Well, oh, no, okay. it is It is Hex Encounter. Think um, Advanced Squad Leader, except you have a deck of cards that does stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, it's really popular, and basically the only critiques I've ever heard of it were the random nature of it, and that's very true. You have a deck of cards per your nationality, and uh, you're not rolling dice. It's it, To me, it's a lot like Advanced Squad Leader or anything like that. Com you know, um, Dadgum, what's the Academy Games one comes to mind. Good thing I can edit is that, this. Is that Lock and Load? Uh, no, but Lock and Load is, is similar, but I was thinking of the Awakening the Bear is the title oh, of it. Oh, uh, Conflict of Heroes. Conflict of Heroes, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, th stuff like that, you know, you have your, your you have a leadership stat, you have movement, firepower, and all this stuff, but everything you do is based on a quote-unquote die roll, which is written on, in the bottom right-hand corner of a card. That's so, how uh, that's how Fields of Fire works. Is the oh, dice okay. are on the cards? Yeah, yeah, it works the same way. Like if you want to fire at a unit, the first thing you do is you check your range. So you have to see you roll. You would roll dice. So you flip over one card and like, okay, I'm in range. And then after that, it's like, well, let me see if my offense beats your defense. And yeah, it goes goes from there. But there's a lot of random things you could do. Like you have a, um. A, a hand of cards that you can do different things like there is overwatch quote unquote where i can shoot in your turn if you're moving toward me and uh just events that randomly happen which were really interesting like you, the sniper or event role where uh things were randomly happening like uh in one in the game at one point a random hex burst into flame it a fire started there which affected my line of sight to the so Germans not, I was trying to get. not kill. based on any fire that was coming into the hex or anything? It's just fire right. started? Okay. It was just random, yeah. 
and you get kind of like bullshit cards that are basically designed to represent like the fog of war. Like, hey, I can't get the line of communication to tell my guys what to do. Like, I have a car, I have a handful of five cards. I really want them to move, but I don't, I can't give them a move order. Or I just, and a lot of that is because I have these other cards that are d- designed just to take up space. That are, they're like, uh, I don't know, like command inefficiency or something like that is whatever it's called. And yeah, they're just designed to take up space in your hand. Okay. Should be like, yeah. So it was just really neat. Uh, I dug it. It was a lot better than I ever thought it would be. And um, I really kind of want to, now I'm kind of interested in investing in the series. I know it's one of those that goes out of print and then it gets expensive and comes back into print. I mean, it's, it's done by GMT. And there is a Mediterranean version and a Pacific version with, I think, like one expansion, one or two expansions each for like Europe, Mediterranean, and uh, Pacific. So, you know, I'm really interested in it. And it really, really made me interested in um, Great War Commander, which is done similarly it's it's i want to see like what the differences are and now i'm actually going to watch some less plays with it hexasim does it not gmt but yeah i'm just really interested so that is what i played and i enjoyed it i recommend it it's moving on to roy yes and the very first game you played man it is super hot in my area (laughs) is it yes samurai yes I uh, so th- I went to uh, Dice Tower Con over the Fourth uh, of July holiday, and this is one of the they have a hot games area, and this is one of the ones that was in there. Um, so there's uh, there's another game called Rising Sun, and I'm not sure who makes that, but essentially it's the same sort of game just with mecha. And so it's a uh, it's an area control game. You have a hand of cards that will move your ships around the map, and then you can there's uh, four zones that you are vying for control and then eventually it gets to a scoring round and who who has the most uh military might in these different zones will win the card and then all this is a little odd all of the winners ships are taken off the card and go back to their home base and all the losers stay there and then a new card comes in um so if you if you lose you your kind of your consolation prizes you get to stick around for the next card um, so you have, you draft two mecha, which have some, uh, special abilities. And then you have a bunch of little fighters and a carrier and you're, you're vying back and forth, trying to get the most honor. And some of the cards are like, one of them was, was hostage that I chose. And so I had to, I had to spend some honor to make somebody else lose more honor or, uh, take all of their, uh, forces off of a particular zone. Uh, so that was Starship Samurai, and uh, this is made by Plaid Hat Games, and um, I don't know, it was okay, but it was. I think the best part of it was the was the mecha, um, you know, very very uh, Robotech, very Gundam looking. Uh, so those were pretty cool, but the gameplay just didn't really grab me that much. Yeah, everybody talks about the miniatures, and they're just completely yeah. blown away by the miniatures and, and like yeah. wow is the game like that can i play that mm-hmm. roy yeah. have you played have you played rising sun no i've not although okay. i it was uh i saw it played and i thought well maybe i'll give this a shot and i just never got around to it 
Okay. I haven't played Rising Sun either, but I was just curious to know how the two compared. So. Okay. I've it's, heard good I, things about Rising Sun. I haven't actually heard of this game at all. So. Okay. Yeah, everybody around me that I was playing the game with said, oh, yeah, this is really like Rising Sun. Uh, okay. But apparently there's a little bit more of a crunchy combat mechanic in Rising Sun. In uh, Starship Samurai, I believe it was just uh, every every figure had a value, and you added them all up and compared, and then you could play another card that would enhance. Um, so that was really the randomness was in the card play. And now, so, I, um, yeah. I, I was going to say, Rising Sun, that was the really big Kickstarter that just uh, shipped to everyone this year, right? Yeah. I, uh, okay, I'm not aware. Yeah, it's 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 newish. This uh, yeah, sometime this year I think. So in our in our gameplay, I, I played it with three other players. Um, the one of the kind of the practical things that should have happened there but did not is that when you um, when you draft your your mecha, you have to like there, there's not any sort of a of a colored base like a colored ring to say well this one's mine. To make to kind of uh, make sure that the ownership is correct, and then uh, the 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 stri- strength of forces changes so much. It would have been nice to have like a spin down die, a D10 maybe, to kind of keep uh, track of the relative level of different uh, of the different forces in each zone. So that was uh, something we wished had uh, uh, been better with that. And is this game out already, or is this coming? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, my, my, local, several... my local shop has it. Okay. Oh. I played several games that uh, have not been released yet. So, at, at Dice Tower Con. And that's one of the nice things about there, is that I, I managed to rub elbows with a lot of designers and preview a lot of games that aren't out yet and games that are maybe headed for Kickstarter um, or going to be released soon. That was kind of neat to kind of see those ahead of time. So um, moving on, we have uh, in, Dice TowerCon has a full library of games. Uh, so the next game I checked out, I had seen this at my local game store called The Last Will of Vladimir Sushi. And uh, Vladimir Sushi is actually the designer of the game, so he put his name in the title. <laughs> and if you've seen the movie Brewster's Millions, it's essentially a game version of that where um, – your, your uncle has uh, uh, left you a bunch of money, and you have to um, spend it all, essentially, so that you can, in fact, inherit more. So there's silly things like, I'm going to take my dog to dinner, and that will cost you a certain amount of money. <laughs> or I can buy a giant estate and just let it rot. And um, so it's, it's kind of a little bit silly, and, 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 uh, but still fun. So, yeah, we enjoyed that, so we ended up picking it up at our uh, local game store. So that's, uh, that's was that Czech Games? Yes. Uh, and, and distributed by Real Grant, I think. Oh, cool. About that part. Yeah. So, uh, and then, uh, Century Eastern Wonders. So I've talked before about Century Spice Road, which is uh, similar to Splendor where you're uh, trading cubes back and forth and eventually trying to fulfill a recipe that you can turn in to get victory points. So um, the design, designer Emerson Matsuuchi um, is, has designed a, a trilogy of games. The third one is not out yet. So Eastern Wonders is the second one. 
And this has a tiling aspect, and you're sailing your ship around to various uh, islands and collecting goods from this island and taking it to the, another island and, and converting it. And eventually you're doing the same thing. You're turning it in, turning in a particular recipe of cubes that you have for victory points. So is it worker so, placement? No, it is not. Okay. It is, um, you're placing uh, little outposts on the different islands, which allow you to trade. Oh, okay. Um, so, and actually I spoke to Emerson Matsuuchi at uh, Dice Tower Con, and I said, well, do you have any spoilers about um, the third one? And he said, well, you know, we had looked at worker placement, um, and tile laying, but we kind of decided to move away from that. We're kind of just going to, for just a, a tile laying sort of thing. So we'll have to, to find out about that. And actually, I uh, talked to him, and I talked to him about doing an interview. So maybe we can, we can, we can bend his ear about that a little bit more. But uh, he has said he's got some releases that are coming out at Gen Con, so look for those. And did you get to play this one, or did you just, like, see a demo yeah. of it? Or Okay. How'd no, you like I, it? I, I bought it. Actually. Oh, there. That's it was, how you like it. it was actually, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was local uh, before I left, and um, so then we we demoed it down there, and then came back and bought it. Okay. And so this next game I quite enjoyed, and it is coming out in September. So I played an advanced copy of it. It's called Teotihuacan City of the Gods, or City of Gods, and so it's a um, this is a worker placement, and all of your workers are dice. So you, have, you start out with three workers, and so you have a temple in the middle that you're in the process of building. And the temple, or I'm sorry, a pyramid. And the pyramid is made up of, of these square wooden blocks that have symbols on it. And then there's a series of eight workshops around the outside of them, and six of those workshops are randomly placed. So you um, put your die into whatever space that you want to start with. There's some rules about placement there. And then you move, you can move up to three spaces around the board and take whatever action happens to be there. So if I move on to the, um, to the quarry and have my worker do a job, then he spins up to a two and he eventually he'll spin up to a six as he's, as he's gaining, um, gaining experience. And then after that, then he ascends to the to be with the gods, and you you put in you he goes back to a one, um, and you kind of move up along. Was it the 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 avenue of the dead is one of the one of the score tracks? There's temple tracks that you can move up on, um, and um, yeah, to get points. So as you're coming around to the different workshops. You have to pay. One of the currencies in the game is cocoa. So as you're coming around to a workshop, if there's one of your colors and one of somebody else's dice in there, then you have to pay two cocoa, or you have to pay one cocoa for each color that's on there as you move into it. And then, uh, depending on how many of your dice you happen to have in a workshop, depends on how good the benefit that is that you get. Um, so yeah, I. I kind of like this game. I think I might pick it up when it comes out. This one looks a is, little. Sorry, it looks yeah. a little heavier. Does that? Am I deceiving me, or is this one a little heavier than some of the other ones you usually yeah, play? Yeah, it's, it's a Euro game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
So you you can uh, go and, and build the pyramid, and then you can add decorations to it. And then as you match symbols, you um, gain a few victory points there, too. Um, this is from, was it NSKN? Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of them before. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and actually, if you look on, um, there's some YouTube videos that I checked out, too where he kind of explains the gameplay much better than I do. And did, the, uh, yes. Did you pick it up pretty easily or is it hard yeah. to wrap your mind around? No, it was fine. So let's see, what else did I do? Max versus minions. I had seen this hmm. and I, has anybody heard of this game? Yeah, I, I played it. It's fun. I, it's, okay. uh, it's, you have to get it from the publisher. I don't think there's any other way to get it. Yeah. Well, that would be riot games. Yeah. Yeah. This is, same people that put out uh, the Mac, or I'm sorry, the uh, League of Legends video game. And um, really? okay, yeah, yeah. and so I've never played money that, but spare. I right. It's it's the same like artwork and theme or whatever. I've never played League of Legends, but that's my understanding. No, yeah. So it uh, plays a little bit like Robo Rally, if you're familiar with that, where it's it's programmed movement. Yeah, Anybody? That's a blast from the past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you have River your rally your... was done by it was the first thing that Wizards of the Coast did after Magic the Gathering. Okay, there might it might be an Avalon Hill that did a little bit of that too. Does that sound right? Uh, see, I'm not sure. I'll check it out. I'll look on uh, <laughs> live googling. So, this um, apparently this game is a labor of love uh, from the designers there at at uh, at Riot, and it's a Canadian company. And it retails for $100 Canadian, which comes around to uh, 75 American, about. And um, it is severely underpriced. Yeah, absolutely. So, when you look at the yeah. quality of the minis, there's no doubt that yep. they're, they could be charging more for this. Yeah. So it is, and, the, and the box itself is kind of design porn because it, <laughs> it has, besides the four main mechs, there's a uh, a a bomb what they call the bomb it's uh looks like a like a naval mine and that's a figure that's on there and then it comes with a hundred little minion figures which are just gray with a black wash on it but i mean every every of those one of those little hundred minions has a spot for it to go so it's, it comes with about five plastic trays in it and each minion has a little place where it'll drop into um so it's uh, yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and the the uh, instructions are very straightforward. The tutorials, you know, it's step by step. Do this, 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 um, and uh, I quite liked it. Uh, so yeah, Mechs versus Minions. Yeah, it's a fun game. I'd like to play that one more. I've uh, I've I've only played it one time, and that was oh probably a year and a half ago. And I've thought about this one a lot, and thought this one would be a a fun one. It's a it's a co-op game, which is nice for you know family games, and it's yeah. something. It's very easy to pick up on, um, mm -hmm. because really all you're doing is laying your cards down to do your movement, and then when it's time to move, you just follow whatever cards are in your sequence. So, yeah, it looks really and cool. it, you know things can be unexpected. Yeah, based on uh, what other people are doing, can push or move you around, and so maybe what yep. you plan on doing was not you know what's going to actually happen. 
Yep. And then when you get hit, you have to replace some of your movement cards. And yeah, it's fun. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. Yep. So next I played uh, Isle of Monsters. This is another game I picked up. This is a cute little game that my wife said, hey, play this with us. <laughs> um, so it's uh, you are raising monsters. You, you collect them from the various piles around the board and uh, put them onto your kind of your training area and you feed them. And once they're all fed, then they're matured, and then they can go to uh, to the scare competition. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very rock paper scissors mechanic when you get to playing. So if, as you after you get them matured and in your hand, then you everybody puts their card down, and you can put down a one or more of the same type, and whoever has the highest scares the crowd for three victory points. But then there's a rock paper scissors, so fire scares. Earth, earth scares uh, water, and water scares fire, um, based amongst all the players, and you gain additional victory points based on that. So it's cute. It's a it's a family game. Um, so yeah, we've enjoyed playing that with my uh, with my nine year old. So that's from Mayday Games. Moving on, I played. Um, uh, have you guys heard of the Unlocked Games? I've heard of them. They are. I mean, I see them everywhere, and there's a ton of them, but I have not played any. I've got a friend that actually does unlock rooms, and I've thought that, you know, he and his wife, we've played games with them together before, that I thought that they might want to play one of these games together sometime, but I never have. Yeah, and it's a game you can really only play once. Uh, done with an app. So okay. You, you just, the, here's the cards, and you read the description. And there's a little picture. And uh, on the picture, there's card numbers. And if you can see a number, you can look at that card. And um, so th this one that I linked here is called Tomb uh, Unlock Tombstone Express. And I actually ended up playing this game with uh, Emerson Matsuuchi, who is the designer of the Century game, uh, and some other people. And it was quite enjoyable. So it's an it, it's all kind of driven around the app. So you have an hour to kind of solve the solve the story. And in this particular one, it was uh, guarding the gem to you're on board a train and you gotta guard the gem or recover the gem that gets stolen. Uh, that's gonna be sent to the Apaches to settle the treaty. Um, so there's a yeah there's a whole host of them and uh, my FLGS are fifteen dollars for one, and it's uh, you know like I say you can only play it once but I mean it's something that you could like play once and then regift pretty easily. Yeah, I would imagine there's probably a great secondary market for that then if it's no replayability because I I know there are I don't know how many there are but I know I've seen many versions of it so. And they have different. I've seen. Of, yes. I've seen them mostly in GameStop, if you can believe that. I've, I, they have a ton of them. Okay, that's, that's where I've seen them. As a as a retail? Yes, to 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 buy them. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, then also these are all games that I played at Dice Tower Con. Um, also at Dice Tower Con, I played Pitch Car, which uh, if you know Tom Vassell, he loves Pitch Car, and it's a a uh, dexterity game. And so every year they have a giant course set up and they have a tournament, uh, kids and adults. And so my wife signed me up for it. And um, 
you flick a little wooden disc around a track and if you go on the off the track then you have to you know back up a little bit and there's jumps and everything else so i was doing really well and and then i i crashed and burned and i came in second so <laughs> i'm i'm the first loser of pitch car for this year <laughs> so do you get Same. like a number of flicks or do you take turns doing flicks and whoever finishes first yeah it's, so it's uh you know you go uh, uh from first to last and then if you uh after everybody's gone, then, then whoever, however the uh, order has shaken out, then they, they go again. Um, so if you knock somebody off, then too bad for them. <laughs> if you knock somebody off and you go off too, then they stay on and you go off. Or if you flip upside down, then you lose your turn. Or, um, but yeah, it's 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 cute, and it's uh, there's there's there there's absolutely no strategy to it. It's just kind of. I don't know. It's amusing, I guess. Uh, it's been on my list for a while. Uh, it's just such a big kind of investment in the beginning. Yeah. I, it's around a hundred bucks, I think, on Amazon yep. right now. It's about it's eighty two twenty six. It's. I don't know if it's. It might not be available at the moment. And we have the base set, um, and it hasn't come out at our house for quite a while. But I don't know. It might come out again here pretty soon. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I've always thought it was cool. That and um, what is that? Is it corn? Starts with a, starts with a corn. Corn. Carabundi. Ah, it's like, Carabundi. No. It's not. It's not cornhole. It's corn. 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 It starts with the C. Because I stall for time as I quickly go to Board Game Geek and and look. Um. But you spend a lot of time. You have to go three pages in. Oh no, I'm still in the A's. On <laughs> okay. Uh, it's crokinole. Oh yeah, Cro- that's a that's a round board. It's a flicking board. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just reminds me of that. Isn't that it's that physical dexterity? Yeah. Isn't that from a Star Wars book? Crokinole? Yeah. Don't know on they, that I, one. I think they played that in the Ahsoka book. Well, I I will say, crokinole is more even more expensive because usually it's a big wooden board, and uh, you can get one as of this podcast. This is a thirty inch crokinole board uh, for two hundred bucks, and Ooh. it says this is tournament sized. You can get that on Amazon. So yeah, it just pitch cards always reminded me of crokinole is what I was trying to uh-huh. say. So. Okay, so in the Ahsoka book, they played a game called Kroken. It was a big disc where they had to flick smaller discs into uh, a board with pegs on it. So sounds like it's based on that game you're talking about, Crokinole. Could be. Uh, so let's see here. Now, uh, Pitch Car Fairy Tile. This is another kid's game made by Aiello Games uh, that I demoed at uh, Dice Tower Con. They said, oh, this won't. this will be out later this year, which <laughs> apparently is the next day at, at home. Because we went to our FLGS and it was there, so we picked it up. So uh, this is a—it's essentially a tiling game, um, and you have a hand of cards, and on the tile or on the boards, there's the dragon, the knight, and the princess, and your cards will say the dragon can see the princess. So in any straight line from the dragon to the princess is um, 
is valid. So if you can make that happen, you can lay that card down, and then that's part of your story. So you can, after you've played the game, then you can lay all these cards down in order, and it tells a little fairy, to- fairy tale, um, which my nine-year-old was just enamored with as we were demoing it. So, like, if you lay them all out in order, yeah, it tells a story of the girl running away, and then the dragon catches her and the knight comes after her and, and saves the, the princess from the dragon and, and, and lays him out. And, um, so, yeah, it's, it was cute. So we picked up Fairy Tile. So right. just out. And see, and also I demoed a game called Feudum, which I've seen at my FLGS, which has some very interesting artwork to it, uh, which is kind of initially what kind of drew me in. Um, and uh, I demoed it with the designer. And so this, it's kind of a worker placement game, I think, um, where you're, you're trading goods back and forth. So it feels maybe a little bit like um, uh, Agricola. Well, no, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's different uh, uh, guilds around the board where you can uh, collect uh, like you, if you go to the monastery, you can collect a bead, and the the prayer bead can be used in a different guild to increase your uh, trade power or something like that. Um, but I I quite liked it, so I would like to know more about it. And actually, I talked to the designer uh, about doing a uh, an interview with us, so maybe we'll learn more about it from him. So that'll be upcoming. I'm trying to see who is the designer for that one. Is that Mark Swanson? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think the artwork is just really cool. And the, there's a there's a, a sea serpent figure and a and a a bonoble snowman figure. <laughs> and very cool looking. Yeah, I really dig the art direction in that. It yeah. looks really cool. He said I was somewhere and I saw a concert poster, maybe for Weezer or something. <laughs> and I looked on okay. Twitter and and said, "I want that guy to do my uh, um, to do my the artwork for my game." That's a fellow by the name of Justin Schultz, I see. Cool. So anyway, shoot him. And uh, finally, I, forget, I almost forgot to put this on my on the list here. I played a beekeeping game, which is kind of a niche. Um, game is called Bee Lives. We will only know summer. So you you manage a hive essentially, and uh, you manage the level of bees, the size of your hive, and of course if if you get too many bees in your hive, then they swarm, and then you end up with a wild hive out on the board, which acts as an AI, and you can put it anywhere, like if you can swarm, and put it over by your opponent and let them deal with it. Um, so uh, this is a game that's headed for Kickstarter here pretty soon. Uh, to be released next year. So I played a, uh, a prototype of that game. So that was all right. Um, and uh, I, would, I would like yeah. to point out that the publisher for Bee Lives is Hit em With A Shoe. It yes. doesn't sound bee-friendly. <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you get too many, is you have to hit them hit with a shoe. So, so Matt yeah. Shoemaker is a beekeeper. He's been a beekeeper for eight years, something like that. Um lives in Philadelphia and um, is a uh, uh, 
librarian also. And so he uh, wanted to develop a game about beekeeping. So it was all right. I, I guess. That. I guess that's where you get uh, the hit him with the shoe is Matt Shoemaker. Okay, yep. that's yep. cool. There you go. So, well, uh, tell tell us about just DiceCon in general. Like, where was it? So it was in Orlando at the Caribe Royale Resort, which it was last year and probably years before that. And they're kind of outgrowing their space. Um, so there, I, I was told there was about three three thousand gamers there. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of pushing up the seams a little bit. Um, so they're going to be there next year. And then the following year, I guess they're going to the Marriott uh, World Center Drive Resort. Um, but the episode yesterday, or I'm sorry, last week, you guys talked about um, the no drinking policy. Right, right, you know, right. Because, yeah, that was going to be a thing. Yeah. Well, it's it's been a thing there. It was it was the rule last year. Um, I recall late night there was a, a couple, and they had I don't know some wine or something, which you know I'm I'm not going to raise a stink about it because they weren't being jackasses, but um, yeah, it's, they've always had a no drinking policy there. So it's um, it's far enough away from kind of the nightlife that. Um, you don't really have to have to deal with uh, you know poor behavior. Um, so yeah, it's it's very family friendly. So there's a kids' room where from one to five in the afternoon, you can just take your kids there, and uh, it's supervised gaming um, with kids. They like they played uh, werewolf with all the kids. Um, they, may, they they kind of toned it down a little bit and called it uh, uh, something about summer camp and the prankster kids were were messing with the other kids. So they, they there was no werewolves involved. Huh, okay. Uh, so um, about froze to death in the in the convention center. So they they I don't know what it is about people in Florida because they, you know they talk about how hot it is, but they keep their air conditioning set at about fifty five degrees. <laughs> Whatever. That sounds good to me. Sounds yeah. awesome. Okay. Uh, but there's there's a lot of designers and things to be uh, met down there too. I previously mentioned mentioned um, uh, well Matt Shoemaker, the the B Lives guy, and then um, some other designers I met and talked to. I had previously said I was going to try to get in touch with Richard Borg, but that I don't know what happened there. My uh, tickets that I had for that ended up apparently I didn't quick check out on my card or something so i never, didn't get never get to didn't get to play anything with him so that was kind of a bummer and i didn't especially get to play um, so much about him what's that especially since we talked so much about him yeah <laughs> yeah and i didn't get to play twilight imperium fourth edition um just because it didn't fit in my schedule and i thought maybe i had a game lined up with somebody and then i got ditched so oh well next year yeah. Okay. Tell tell me about like the the no alcohol thing. Were they like were there signs up or anything, or were they stopping any people that were like, no. obviously drinking? I was just curious. No, there's they just nobody was interested in it. Um, they had a little concession area 
that they sold sandwiches and chicken fingers and coffee and stuff in. Um, but it just wasn't really a thing. And there was like, I had uh, a 12-pack of Corona in my, in my room, which I had when I was in my room. But I, you know, I never, I just didn't do it. I don't know. Everybody's there to play games. Okay. So. In- interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw and, uh, I saw an article. It was a blog by a woman. Um, I saw it posted on Reddit as well. That went to Dice Tower Con, and you know, there's obviously been we've talked about, and there's been a lot of talk about you know, sexism and everything else in the industry and what's might be coming up at Gen Con. But she went to Dice Tower Con and she was there with her daughter and she was a little scared to go because of everything that's been talked about. And she said she had nothing but a wonderful experience. Everyone was super friendly. You know, they treated her daughter and her with respect and everything. So mm-hmm. sounds like Dice Tower Con might be the way to go. Yeah. I, I would recommend it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Aside from Dice Tower Con, I got to go to Kennedy Space Center, which was awesome. Got to see some big ass rockets. Now, ah, oh, that's cool. Did, yeah, you talking about over in Cape Canaveral? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, my wife's gr- grandmother used to have a condo there, so we've been there a few times, and yeah, okay. that's always a good time. Yeah. Which that that sort of thing just makes me super emotional. <laughs> you know, just just all the things that that it took to get people to the moon yeah so yeah i think that i think that that is the greatest thing that human beings have ever done yeah actually actually sent a man to the moon yeah i i actually uh had lunch with a bunch of people from uh work and it included some retired guys and one of them talked about he he stayed up late to watch it i think he was like eight (laughs) or something like that when it happened and mm-hmm. I was just like, Dad, gum, I cannot imagine something like that. I guess it would be, for me, it would be like if we went to Mars and there mm-hmm. was like a, la- a, you know, we were landing on Mars, you know, and uh, yeah, I just can't imagine what it'd be like. It's like, hey, we're going to the fucking moon. We're going to yeah. land there. I'm like, really? What? Yeah. Come on. Like, yeah, stay up. Because, I mean, at that point, we had not even had color TV. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so you have this. You know, you've been, you've grown up watching this video box this in your room, in the den, this giant box that brought information to you, and all of a sudden they're going to show you a guy walking on the moon. Just how crazy that would be. And not yeah, only that, but imagine. it, you know, less than a century before, humans had never flown. And then within 100, <laughs> like 70 years or whatever, we're actually putting a man on the moon. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And then, damn it, we stop. What yeah. the hell? We, we, yeah. we should be on Pluto at this point. <laughs> but we're just like, eh, what, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, we, we've gone as far as we want to go. So they have um, memorabilia from Gus Grissom and Roger Chafee, who is from Grand Rapids near me. Uh, and, gosh, the other guy's name escapes me. The guys that um, um, had the fire and died on the on the pad. They had some memorabilia. Oh. Now. Yeah, so some yeah, yeah. memorials to various people. They had a Saturn V uh, laying down in this long hall, so you could walk the length of the Saturn V. Huh. Um, and the, the I saw the Atlanta space shuttle, which was cool. Um, very inspiring stuff. And my nine-year-old loved it. She's my science girl. She's at science camp yeah. this this year or this week. 
so uh, moving on to our next segment is What's in Your Radar, where we just talk about things that we just kind of stumbled upon and were discovered. They don't necessarily have to be anything that's out new, but just we noticed. And uh, the first thing I had on here was uh, Dark War RPG and Skirmish Game. Um, I ran across this, and I think what I have linked in the show notes is a download from RPG Now. But you can actually get a physical uh, board game of this. It is a small one-to-one skirmish game that's kind of a, a weird Cold War. I guess it's not weird World War Two. It's it happens in the Cold War, but there's like werewolves and shit running around. <laughs> so yeah, I just thought that was really neat. It, apparently, it was based on Mark H. Walker's novels. It takes place in an alternate 1985 during the middle of World War Three. So if I remember correctly, uh, Mark Mark H. Walker his novels were the basis for Lock and Load's um, World War 3 stuff, Cold War Gone Hot. I can't remember correctly. Yeah, I think that's right. He uh, He's done some uh, board games as well. And I'm all, yeah. Because, yeah, he did uh, Lock and Load, Forgotten Heroes, Vietnam. I know. And uh, I think he did Anzac Attack, Band of Heroes, and some other stuff. So, yeah. So it's mostly uh, if it's oh yeah he also did um, White Star Rising the Nations of War thing so this is just his thing he's done for Lock and Load and Flying Pig game so I just kind of thought that was neat and would toss it on there I honestly have thought about trying to pick that up a printed version but I don't know I can't see it it's just I don't know me and the price for it can't seem to agree so there you go. <laughs> Uh, moving on to, uh, this is actually something I discovered as we were recording last time. It's called Dungeon Degenerates, Hand of Doom. And I'm honestly attracted to this game based on the art style. Which just seems really, really neat. Kind of like 1970s blacklight, you know, stuff you'd find (laughs) in a head shop or, or whatever. It just looks really cool. I don't know how it plays. I do know this is a Kickstarter that finished, and it is now available at uh, retail. So this is Dungeon Degenerates. And you can, you know, anything we talk about, you can see it in the show notes. Uh, what I'm going to assume is this is a dungeon crawler. But, um, yeah, I don't think it is a dungeon crawler. It is a exploration-tile fantasy horror medieval game with co-op play and dice rolling. So, you guys ever heard of this one? I've heard of it. I have not played that one. Yeah, me neither. I'm uh, totally going to trick out my van with these de- decals or with these uh I know, right? <laughs> yeah. It it does look like that. I think that's probable Enough. cause to get pulled over for <laughs> D- DUI. <laughs> yeah. These vans are knocking. Vans are rocking, don't come and knock. <laughs> The next thing I found was just the concept of this. You know, I kind of get kind of jaded when it comes to board games. Like, we've seen it all. So when something like this comes along, it really attracts my attention. It's called Holding On, The Troubled Life of Billy Care. And it's from Hub Games. And this is, uh, you play as the medical staff 
tasked with easing the last few days of terminally ill Billy Care following a massive heart attack. You, you've tried to keep him around long enough for him to reveal the story of his troubled past so he can confront his lifelong regrets. So, wow. I, you know, I mean, it, to me, that's a re- really original idea. Maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe I just, you know, I'm not familiar with it. But for me, encountering this, I'm like, wow, that's something that sounds original to me. And this is so, coming from uh, the same company that did uh, Story Cubes. Yes. Which uh, you I was can just get it today. Yeah. Rory's Story Cubes. <laughs> Rory's Story Cubes. Yeah. Why not make Roy's Story Cubes? We can do uh, that. My story's pretty boring, I guess. I don't know. We'll put it on Kickstarter and see what the, see what the people say. As long as there's a case of beer in there somewhere. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a stretch goal. Yep. All right. Um, but yeah, I just go toss that on. And that's, um, yeah, that's uh, I don't know. That's that's a, that's a heavy topic. It is. And yeah. I don't know if I like want to be the guy that shows up, hey, guys, let's play the troubled life of Billy Care. And it's like, oh, and you just bring the whole party down. They're like, oh, now I'm sad. Everybody I go, get out the beer and the pretzels while we play uh, the game trying to ease this guy into the next life. Lots of tissues. You drink too much, you end up calling your parents. It's sad, you know. It's like, uh, but I don't know. It's I they they got points for originality. I'll tell you that. Yeah. The next thing I discovered was from Morpheus. It is Caffraninum. Caffraninum. Why do they got to make these Capernium? Yeah. Why do they got to make unpronounceable games? Anyway, it's the Tales of the Dragon Marked RPG. And uh, I have to say, I've, I've been impressed with Morpheus um, lately. You know, they have a lot of different IPs. You know, they managed to land Star Trek and, and whatnot. And uh, they have Mutant Chronicles, Conan, Corellius, Fallout, Infinity. You know, they, they've got a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, they got Tales from the Loop as well as, well as Mind Jammer, Mutant Years in a Row. And so I've been impressed with, like, what they can have and this is as of this podcast is the number one hottest R- uh, title from them on uh, RPG drive through RPG so uh, what this is about this is a, a whole new world of history legend and myth a profound and original setting simple yet flexible rules encouraging player inventiveness up to epic levels of play and uh, apparently the area that you're in is inspired by Middle Eastern history and myth. So, yeah. It's it's a translation from French. I'm always looking for a new original RPG, that, but this one is kind of like Arabian Nights and stuff. So, mm-hmm. just thought I would uh, toss it on here. Bring it to uh, our attention. Uh, the next thing was Moonstone the Game. Yeah, this is something... I've always been fascinated by skirmish gaming. Anybody that listens to the podcast will tell you that. And this is one that apparently I've missed, that I just kind of ran into. This is a 2-4 to four player in a grim fairy tale type world. Looks like it's got like metal and, metal and resin figures for this uh, and it's I you know I just kind of dig the the look of it and plus it's on a 3x3 playing surface 
again, I love small-scale skirmish. You know, you throw a little bit of terrain, you get the uh, the rule book, and apparently you can, let's see, I think this is a free download. Yes, it is. It's a free download. For the rule book, you just need a 21 or 18 card combat deck, which you can also download and uh, to play this game. I just, I don't know. I, di I dig that. I dig the art style and the figures mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, just something I missed. I was going to uh, bring it to your attention on the What's on Your Radar. Yeah, the menus look like they have a lot of detail to them. Yeah, and, and it always amazes me, you know, these little companies that, I, I mean, I'm assuming they paid somebody famous or whatever to, to do this, to do these um, figures, but it's like, dadgum, how did I miss this? You know, how are you producing this kind of good stuff, and I missed it completely, you know? I don't know. But they're out there. They've got about 3,000 likes on Facebook. So, I mean, somebody's playing this game. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and again, it's probably a UK-based game, if I'm uh, reading this correctly. We just don't, you know, get a lot of these in the U.S., so that's why I kind of like to talk to them. And, you know, the judgment we mentioned last time was available out of Australia. So, you know, yeah, they're everywhere, but just doesn't seem to grow here in the U.S. much. I don't know. Moving on. A friend of mine liked this Kickstarter, and that's how I discovered it. Uh, once you listen to this podcast, there's about two weeks left to go, and you can see this in the show notes. This is Neoclassical Greek Revival, the RPG. I, I think you didn't... You need to look a little closer there. Was it Neoclassical Greek Revival? No. Nope. Neoclassical You added an R in there. Neoclassical Greek Revival. No, nope. you keep adding an R in there. <laughs> Where am I adding an R? Look at the second word again. Neoclassical Greek Revival. Nope. Geek <laughs> Revival. Oh, shit, you're right. It is. That gum. I don't know why I'm complete. Uh, that's, yeah, what's wrong with my brain? That I am constantly thinking Greek Revival. You're right. This is Geek Revival. Well, I initially thought yeah. it said Greek also. But I'm like, wait, no, that's different. Okay. I don't know. Something, something in my brain that just it just deceives me the way I do it. Uh, I will say this is Canadian Kickstarter, so yay, your uh, American dollars will go far, mm -hmm. and uh, it's actually pretty reasonable. You, uh, I think, for just five bucks Canadian, you can uh, you get like just the base game in PDF oh. form, of course, and then uh, at ten, you know, you can get the the PDF and the print and and stuff like that. And so uh, I'm honestly thinking about, you know, doing this. Uh, I love original kind of settings, and uh, this is one that's kind of passed me by. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize, and I love the artwork and stuff on it, but yeah. Okay, it's Geek Revival. That's important. Neoclassical <laughs> Geek Revival. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. And I'm going to leave that in, too, when I edit this. <laughs> so... Moving on. Oh my gosh, there's a St. Louis ASL tournament? Yes, there is. Two weeks. I will be there. And I can spend $30. Do I get a free t-shirt with my $30? Uh, I don't think 30 includes the t-shirt. I think you got to pay an extra 10 bucks or so for the t-shirt. No, no. Looking, 15? Looking at this, it's, so it is? It's 15. Okay. Yeah, yeah I ordered extra. both. Though. I got the t-shirt this year, so I'll be getting that. Yeah, so here in St. Louis, this will be the 20, uh, 21st. 
although it says 20, 21th annual. Uh, this will be the, the annual St. <laughs> <laughs> Louis ASL tournament. So uh, I actually went for the first time last year. had a lot of fun, uh, but we'll play, I think it's, I think it's four rounds. I think we play Friday afternoon, two on Saturday, and then one on Sunday morning. So I have no idea how many people are going to be there or who's going to be there. I'm sure I'll see some people, uh, some of the local people and a few people from out of town as well. But, uh, you know, three days of play in ASL, and I'm going to have a great time. We'll probably not win a single match, and I don't care. You know, uh, I know a lot of people travel to these things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, last year was the 20th anniversary, so we had a couple people from Europe and, yeah, quite a few people from out of town really traveled for this one because it was the 20th anniversary. There's a few big ASL tournaments every year. This probably isn't one of the biggest ones, but it's at least on the list. It's probably not as big as, like, ASL OK, which is in... I always thought it was in Oklahoma just by the name, but I think it's in Indiana. And there's a, there's a big one down in Texas, too. So, uh, Yeah, that's just really interesting to me. And, yeah, I, I fo- I've always followed, for years I've followed ASL just kind of on the corners of it. I never get to play it, or I, I never have played it. That's going to change in the future. And um, I just, I've seen, you know, these tournaments pop up, and it's just people coming from all, uh, literally all over the world. And, but, I mean, it may just be as small as, like, 20 people at the tournament. Oh, yeah. But they're, they're, they're from, like, Europe, Asia, you know, Australia, wherever. They're coming in to play this because ASL has that cult following. Yeah. I just, re- I really think that's neat. Yeah, I'm, I'm really yeah, hoping but, to see the... Uh... I don't. I've looked at the scenario list not that closely. That's already been published, but I'm hoping someone has the uh, the Korean War module that just came out, just so I can take a look and uh, maybe Friday morning. Usually there's some games before the actual tournament starts. Maybe get to play Korea as well. Yeah, uh, cool. yeah. You know, I will. Th- I will say I think well, when the kids start back school this fall, I'm gonna try to do. Well, at least one day a week, me and Rich can do ASL. Because, I mean, damn it, I, I've loved this game from the outside for so long. I really need to get into it. And then, you know, hey, St. Louis isn't that far. I could come up for one of these. Absolutely. It'd be yeah. It'd be great. I will say I did order a T-shirt for this. <laughs> I, just, I just went ahead and did that, which is going to be really weird when the guy gets paid for it. And he's like, wait, this guy didn't register for the tournament. He just ordered a T-shirt. So it's all right. We'll figure it out. So, uh, moving on, uh, this next thing is really interesting. Um, I kind of ran, accidentally had this conversation on Twitter, and uh, we're Chance of Gaming, all one word, at Twitter, and on um, Twitter, Twitch, Patreon, blah, 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 you name it. Anyway, I ran into the guy, posted something about it, and I was like, hey, what is this game about? And it's essentially a chit-draw game based on early World War One. It's called Brave Little Belgium. It's designed by Ryan Heilman and Dave Shaw, and Hollandspiel is publishing it later this year, I believe. They've got some great and, games. Uh, it, yeah, I know, and it looks really interesting, so I was like, oh man, this is right up my alley. Tell me all about it, and uh, he did, which was really interesting. He even said he has a vassal module if we would like to uh, fool around with it, just to kind of get a feel, a feel on how it plays and stuff. So, um, 
I may, you know, hit you up for that, Rich. Yeah. Since you're the, the you're the vassal expert. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm for, definitely up for that. This one looks fun. For uh, trying it out, you know, it has a nice little small little map and it's uh, chit draw and yeah, I yeah, I'm di- I'm digging this. I really think um, if it goes to Kickstarter, I would definitely back it. But I think it's just going to be for sale from Holland Spiel. Yeah. Whom occasion, who occasionally actually does uh, sales. If you <laughs> wanted to buy a bunch of stuff from them, they do. So, yeah, they've, you know, there's that. They've got some good games in it. Um, I think almost everything they do is usually a smaller, frit, smaller footprint, smaller, not even necessarily lighter games, but they're usually smaller ward games, which is nice. Yeah, I mean, this looks pretty small. And so I would hazard to say, like, oh, it must be cheap. That, but that may not not be true, so we'll see. Their games are reasonable. I mean, they're usually there's there's one game they have that's on the top of my list. I'm looking at called Agricola Master of Britain, not the farming game. It's actually named after the guy Agricola, um, oh. but I think it's like it's like thirty five forty bucks. It's not bad. Oh, that reminds me, we discovered. Uh, what trapeer means, right? Yeah, I saw that. I never knew that, which is interesting because my mom has done some uh, some genealogy stuff and everything. But uh, obviously, her maiden name wasn't trapeer. Most of the most of the stuff she found was tracing her line, not necessarily my dad's line. So apparently, I'm a goat herder. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Somebody posted posted it on uh, on Twitter, like what it, trapeer. And it, yeah. the spelling is a little different from yours, right? Because your last name, and it's like it means goat herder, and I was I had to tag yeah. you in it. I'm like, aha, see? Yeah, there was a guy on the English World Cup team whose name is Trapier, spelled almost like mine, but not exactly. So, <laughs> so you know, there you go. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I had on what's your radar was the final cover and release details for the Witcher role playing game has been released from our. Talsorian games. Are you guys familiar with The Witcher? Yeah, I haven't played it, but it's known for being one of the best stories in any computer RPG. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I mean, that's what I was going to say is it, it, I cannot accurately say how insanely popular this video game is. And it's mainly based on the third one, The Witcher 3. But they say go back and play the the first and the second one. They're also good. But uh, just the stories and everything behind it are just completely excellent. I want to say it was re- it's based on... I know it's based on a series of books. And I want to say it's from a guy in Poland that did it. And famously, he sold the digital rights, the video game rights for just like, I don't know, like five grand or ten grand. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. And it's gone on to become the most popular thing since sliced bread and made millions of dollars, and the guy is kind of bitter about it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because he didn't think it would go, he would, it wouldn't go anywhere or do anything. Now, I would say arguably people, I know plenty of people that have loved the video game so much that they have gone and bought all the novels and read them and and stuff like that. So, yeah. But this is the role-playing game. It is an adapted version of the Cyberpunk 2020 rule system, which includes deadly critical wounds, whatever that means. And this 360-page hardcover has an MSRP of 50 bucks. So, So, Al Tal Sorian is the 
company that actually put out Cyberpunk back in the day. So that was, that's an old 80s rule set, Cyberpunk is. Ah, really? I yeah. thought that sounded familiar. Yep. Yeah, and they, they're doing, uh, apparently, oh yeah, they are going to do the Cyberpunk 2077 video game, which I think is coming out next year. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they do Mechton is the uh, the other game they're known for. The, there was something a, on, uh, wasn't there something on uh, uh, coming up with uh, our, with Mechton? Didn't like something get uh, refunded there? A Kickstarter? Uh, I don't know. I just okay. see the uh, the role playing game that you can still get with all those classic late eighties, early nineties graphics and stuff. Aha. A enter enter a world of high adventure and mechanized combat, a distant galaxy where science fiction and Japanese anime collide. <laughs> well, there you go. So anyway, you can see this in the show notes. All right, uh, guys, before we get to news, we've got a great interview with somebody you know from the COIN series. Volka Runka agreed to uh, sit down with us on Skype and talk to us all about himself and the COIN series and what he's doing in the future. And I know a lot of you are just simply listening to this podcast strictly for that, and we hope you stay with us after that. And, uh, well... We'll talk through the magic of editing and the internet. We'll toss that interview now. All right, with Rich and I right now is Vol- Volka Runke, and I've been struggling to pronounce that, sorry. And he is the creator of the Coin series. So welcome to our little podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me. Glad to be here. So how long have you been a board game designer? Designer coming on two decades now. I'm at, I'm at the point in my life where I kind of I don't talk about years anymore. I sort of talk about decades in terms of you know 30 years of a career or 40 plus years as a war gamer and 10 years as an instructor and about coming on tw- you know 20 20 years as a as a designer. I was doing a little bit of dinking around with things, scenarios and variants and the like in the late 90s. And then my first uh, published full game was Wilderness War, which was 2001. But the design work, of course, was going on before before that all right wilderness war uh, yeah it's a gmt game so you've done a lot of stuff for gmt yeah yeah so i have in fact um gmt everything i've i've published has been um published by gmt any particular reason it's just you already had an established relationship with them and just kept it going or you know they treated you really well yeah yes um in, in both cases so and then in the 90s, when I was starting to get into, you know, really re- reworking games and starting to design for war gamers, uh, I, you know, GMT was, for me, the leading the leading company. I loved the art. I was, you know, I, I was and am a big Roger McGowan fan, and he was doing um, all their in, you know, internal and external art at that time. And so uh, when I thought, well, if I, you know, if I'm going to try to pitch a company to publish something, I'm, I'm going to start with GMT and see where it goes from there. So that was the first thing. I had done some play tests for them. I had met Gene uh, Billingsley at cons and uh, worked up some scenario work. And with Wilderness War, it was a, uh, you know, a classic card-driven game. And by that time, by the year 2000, GMT was uh, the, the, the company at the time that had inherited... Uh, publication of CDG as a as a as a format, 
and whether it was trademarked or not, I don't know. Um, but at that time, it was it was you know paths of paths of glory, and of course, as we all know, uh, a few years later, Twilight Struggle, and things in between. They had picked up for the people, and Gene was looking. I knew that Gene was looking for other uh, card-driven game genre designs, and that's what Wilderness War was. And so, so that also seemed to be a match. And since then, uh, I mean, I've never, I've never had a reason to take anything I've done elsewhere first. And so far, since Gene hasn't rejected anything that I've brought him, uh, we're here. Yeah, I'm a big fan of GMT myself. If uh, One of the things I like about them and one of the things that works so well with the coin games is they're such a big supporter of Vassal. Um, yeah. And, you know, the coin games work so well on Vassal. I've always got one or two coin games going on Vassal, and then I always... I've, you know, I've got the games. It's not all of them, but uh, they they work so well on Vassal. And I just it amazes me that GMT, like for 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 instance, Andy and Abyss, which I don't own because it's pre-ordered and it's you know it's not it's not in print right now. But when Coming you go very to GMT, yeah, is it excellent? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you should. Have yeah, them. I'm I'm hoping early August for excellent. WBC, and if not, if they don't make WBC, then it's not going to be much later. I mean, it's. Well, that is good news to hear because that one I've never even played, and obviously that's the first one. That's where it all comes from. But when yep. you go to the GMT page, it says, "Hey, play it right now on Vassal," and they say this is everything you need, which I love. So, yeah, and that, of- we did that even before. Uh, it's funny enough, I was back on that same spot today looking for something else. But we did that even before it was published with sort of play test materials, and we knew that it was sort of a strange thing, and who, you know, Columbia, and it's an odd topic for GMT's audience, so. So we wanted to, you know, give people as much of a chance to look at it, you know, um, ahead of even ahead of the first printing um, back in 2012. And, you know, mentioning Vassal, I really uh, I don't know if your listeners know this, but you're, you're absolutely right. The GMT, I think it's great that they take all their final art files and make them available to folks like like Joel Toppin, who's so skilled at doing very sophisticated Vassal modules and to have all that out there. But. It's also critical, maybe even more critical, maybe from where I sit, that the Vassal modules typically get done during playtest with playtest materials. So Joel or whoever's doing the Vassal modules ends up kind of doing it twice. And the first time that that Vassal um, connectivity is so critical to playtest because you always have the struggle of, you know, recruiting enough play testers who are, you know, it's it's basically free labor and it's, you know, sort of unsung heroes yeah. who are doing this kind of work of pl- playing and replaying something that isn't really, you know, fully baked uh, and, and shaking it down. And on top of that, if we were to ask them, okay, and you have to construct a physical set and, you know, with, with paper and scissors and <laughs> glue, and then you have to find somebody else who's willing to be the same kind of masochist you are local, you know, we would get far fewer um, play testers. And the vassals just, just that, that technology has just opened up the ability to have a much more thoroughly um, uh, calibrated design by the time you go to the printer. It's, it's, really, a, it's really a very, and so, so, for, so GMT supports that as well in terms of, in terms of okay, fine, let's see if we can um, you know, make sure that that our designs, if you know the designer wants to go this way and the developer wants to go this way, 
has has a vassal support before any of their art's even done. How long do you usually playtest a game like this before it's considered, you know, final? Um, months, and and I and I say it that in that vague way because it really does, it really does vary. In other words, you're not typically saying, okay, we're going to do this, and then three months we're going to go to press and so forth, and which is why you see a lot of things move around. Uh, if you if you watch the pre-order system, the P500s and Gene's uh, monthly notes that give a tentative production outlook, those the, the the titles will move around in terms of what quarter because sometimes you oh well we're going to do a big change we're going to do a big core change here, and these designs as you as you know are all integrated. Um, it's not like I can you know rip a paragraph out of a story, rework it, and stick it back in. Um, sure. If you you change something the balances um, ripple out into the rest of the design depending on how fundamental the change is. And so, for example, in my current project, which is Nevsky, Medieval Operational Warfare, we're a, we're a, few, you know, a couple months into playtest. I'd say we're almost ready for, for beta, for a, sort of a fresh group to take a fresh look at it. Pretty far in, and we're changing victory conditions, how victory conditions work, how victory conditions work. <laughs> Uh, I've done. I made map changes multiple times. Um, we're changing the like a strength of a of a major unit militia went from hitting with one to hitting with one half. And so I mean, and, and that sounds like might sound like it's a small thing, but then you have to say, okay, well, does this what else you know does that does that affect in this you know this tuned machine? You know, you can't just sort of like if you just tune one wire on the piano, it 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 it. it it, it changes the shape of the piano a little bit and you have to re-go back and so so that's great because that means we're getting really important consequential feedback from the testers first of all we have a great conversation going via um, my very skilled developer uh, Wendell Albright with the testers on one side me on the other side and Wendell between us and and we're gonna just take the time to get the, the, the machine humming so I think the fastest I've ever gone from, hey, let's do a game on this, to we're going to, it's, it's out there, is several months, you know, about maybe half a year-ish for a distant plane. That was really fast with Brian Train in 2013. But most of the time, it's probably going to be, a, you know, one, one and a half, two-year project. I've been working on Nevsky since early beginning of the spring of last year so we're going on a going on a, a year and a couple of months from That's hey I do this to you know where we go and we're and we're still months out I think from going to art okay well that's good to hear because that's another one I've got pre-ordered so <laughs> what what is this game so this is uh Nevsky uh Teutons and Roost and Collision it is the volume one of a new series called Levian Campaign Series that is focused on Medieval warfare at the operational scale. So it's not like a single battle with you know two rows of troops. There are battles in it, and it's not. It's it's but it's more focused in than strategic. It's not the entire War of the Roses or all of medieval Europe or something like that. Its turns are 40 days long. It's a typical uh, basic feudal obligation of 40 days service of a, of a vassal. That's like one turn, and so you might have a full game might cover. A couple seasons to two years, so that's kind of the scale of it. And the idea is that that we 
model operational medieval warfare logistics and how the feudal system mobilized for war. In other words, lords asking you know, other lords, hey, you have this obligation to come serve, will you do it? And it's sort of a loose uh, hierarchical system, the feudal system. And then their lords will levy some vassals and they'll gather together and they might gather together some equipment like some carts or boats or something and and maybe hire some crossbowmen or not and, and then march off. And then at a certain time, it's like, well, our time's up. We're going home. You know, <laughs> unless you start paying us or unless we're gaining some some loot from the enemy or if, if or if things are really going well, then we might stick around longer. So a big part of the game is this feudal calendar that determines how long will your lords and their vassals serve on campaign and when might they turn for home. And you have to kind of keep an eye on keeping your army together over time. And and this is an area that's not much gamed, not much uh, simulated in the hobby, uh, medieval era operational level, operational scale warfare. So there are tons of campaigns and stories to tell. So we're starting on the Baltic frontier of the 13th century with Alexander Nevsky. And if you've seen the famous 1930s Soviet movie with the battle on the ice and everything, it's that campaign. So Teutonic Knights and Danes and uh, Russian princes and the like um, battling it out in the Baltic. But then from there, we'll go to Scotland, to Spain, to the Holy Land, and really it's almost unlimited in terms of the pre-industrial campaigns that one could cover because there are so many in history and so few have have seen a game. Yeah, I think it really fills a hole in the, you know, the wargaming, uh, you know, what's out there. So. So is this one going to P500 yet? It is on. Yes, it's on P500, and I think it's around seven hundred-ish, some seven eight hundred orders pre-orders, something like that. And it's tentatively slated for uh, the first half of next year, and that will come back to that question of play test and when we say okay. This thing is shaken out enough. I mean, it's never perfect. You always, you know, game is never finished, only published. But when we get to the point where Wendell and I are, okay, you know, at this point, we're at, at most tinkering or we're actually happy. The thing is operating the way we want. And uh, let's, let's you know, go ahead and, and pull the trigger and go to art. And I'm hoping we'll be at that point sometime around the end of the summer if things go well. And that means... You know, after the new year, sometime we'll, we'll see the thing print. Yeah, uh, you know, in players' hands. All right. Uh, for those of us at home that don't that have not played a coin series game, what? How would you describe it? Coin series, I would describe as covering at the national level internal wars of various kinds. That is to say, in the modern context, it might be. Uh, insurgencies and counterinsurgencies, revolutions, civil wars. In the ancient context, it might be more uh, external invasions, but with a heavy component of internal friction among various factions in whatever theater it is. And the theater here is something the size of a modern country, right? So Annie Davis that you mentioned uh, covers Colombia from about the mid-1990s uh, to like right after the death of um, Pablo Escobar, but the Cali cartel is still a, a power, and the FARC, a leftist um, guerrilla movement, is coming on. And in reaction to that, 
uh, right-wing um, outer defenses, right-wing local defense groups are forming into a national organization, and the government is trying to win back legitimacy across the, the country. From that period of the mid-1990s into the early 2000s was a period in which Colombia was facing a, that three-pronged insurgent threat, narco, uh, left and right-wing um, challenges to its authority. And the government undertook a, a very ambitious strategy to try to beat all of them and came out pretty much on top, uh, pretty much on top with a country that's quite unified, a government that has reestablished its legitimacy for the first time in over four decades across across um, its territory. Cartels, big cartels busted up into um, micro cartels that are still there, but are much less of a, a threat politically um, to the to the country. And the the, the right wing um, paramilitaries demobilized, largely demobilized or broken up into smaller criminal bands. And the FARC, of course, famously now having uh, agreed to a peace with the government and participating legitimately in, in the political process. So I, I, that that game um, looks at that story of how did the government pull that off? What, how did the government take on these multiple insurgencies at once? And that sets a situation that is typical, although not universal for the coin series volumes. And that is, it's not just for most of these volumes, a two-way contest. In the Allegheny Abyss, there are four parties. That's typical of the coin series volumes. And they all have different visions for the future of the country, for, the, for what they want Colombia to look like, expressed in their victory conditions, each of which is unique. So everyone is doing something different in terms of achieving victory. And they also all have a different uh, set of operations, a different menu of actions they can take into, in terms of how they're going to fight that war. And so those those aspects, the asymmetrical victory conditions and asymmetric ways and means of pursuing those conditions are typical of the coin series. Um, I did want to ask you about your uh, background. You're doing historical games. Do you have any uh, formal background in history? I am not a professional historian, uh, so I don't I don't have a background in that. I don't have a PhD. I have an undergraduate degree in history and uh, also in international relations and then a master's in foreign service, which is international relations. Uh, and then I did some uh, graduate work at um, uh, university in the 90s as well. So I've done, you know, academic study of history, but I've never made my living studying history. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. <laughs> I uh, I have a um, a uh, bachelor's in history, and I work in television. So you know, it's just <laughs> yeah, just what we do. And so you know, it, this is an, a wonderful thing about the board games as a medium is that they're they're so accessible, and it's you know, you people who are very passionate and very knowledgeable about whatever issue you're doing. Uh, they they come out of the you know of the of the internet of the environment and they can let you know where you've where you've gone wrong and so this is another reason why as i was saying with nevsky for example well we keep changing things in tests and it's not just that oh we play the game and this or that didn't work the way we expected we have people who know a lot about 
what to me are you know very obscure corners of the of the of our history of the history of, of, of humanity and they see something in the game and they say well that's not quite right and here's and and so it's I feel like it's 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 freed me to be a tourist not only in all the different games that I play because I war game a lot as sort of a form of time travel I want to go to you know different exotic <laughs> places and visit them via via the games but even as a designer when I say well I mean, I've read some books and, you know, I know something about 13th century Livonia and Russia, but I'm not going to stop myself because I know there are people out there who know a lot or are professionals uh, because I'm going to do the best I can to model it and I'm going to get some help. And and I've every, every single game that I've done, I've gotten a lot of help from people who know more about it about the history or the country than I do, and, and then we adjust. So one thing I've always been curious about in that topic of modeling history is that often these conflicts that really happened, you know, 100 or 1,000 or, you know, however many years ago, one side won, and sometimes one side won overwhelmingly. But as a game, we don't necessarily want to make it so that one side wins overwhelmingly because that's not as much fun to play. So do you look for things that could have gone either way on the, the, you know, the, the, the weird coin flip of history? Or do you change the circumstances to say, what if this had happened instead of that? Well, I think it's the, it's the, the first one is, is really the heart of, of simulation design. because, And the, and the first one being... You look for what might might have been and wasn't. And so, for starters, if it's a game and we're we're playing to see the outputs of our inputs, right? It's a model of history, and we want to have plausible outputs from their inputs. We want to make this decision or that decision, and see that things unfold in a way that we might think is reasonable. And we want to have freedom of action. If the whole game is running on a rail and it's just the same historical story, that's not a game. It's, it's yeah. boring, right? So that means we have to. First, there's no choice. We have to allow things to happen that didn't happen, right? That's that's an absolutely necessary uh, aspect. Secondly, what we're trying to do here is what actually sophisticated historians try to do or should be trying to do, and that is not just tell a story of, well, this happened and then that happened and then the third thing happened, right? That's pretty rudimentary history. Interesting history is, here's how things worked back then. Here's what the relationships were. Here's what mattered. These were the drivers. And that means when this or that thing happened, the chances of that having happened or going some other way are as follows. And these things that happened are really outliers. And these things that happened were pretty much set. They were, there was, they were, going, to, they were going to happen regardless because larger drivers were at play. Those kinds of analyses, of, of, that's what sophisticated historical study is, is we're not really so much interested in, well, what was the chain of events? That's kind of easy enough to establish. We're interested in understanding what was humanity like back then? What was it like undertaking a military campaign in 1240 in Russia? How did that work? What are the potentials? What are the possibilities? Okay, and that is what we're trying to communicate to players and let players experiment with in a simulation game, which means 
we have to have as a designer, we have to have some opinions about what were the possibilities and what were the outliers. And there's a great discussion of this in a book um, by Professor Phil Sabin, historic, uh, history professor at King's College London, in his book, uh, Simulating War. And he talks about thinking about all uh, events in history as being on some kind of bell curve of the possibilities. And it's not, of course, the case that everything that happened was at the center hump, right, the high point of likelihood of the bell curve. Some things that happened were really weird, extreme events. And that's all a matter of opinion, right? We can never go back and prove, we can't run, okay, well, let's run the Battle of Waterloo 100 times and see <laughs> what, you know, 63% of the time the British win and, you know, whatever. I mean, you can't do that. You have some opinion about what the potential was. And every historical game design expresses opinions like that, whether the designer has them explicitly in mind or not, implicitly does, in the likelihood of what's happened. So you, if you look at a conflict and you say, okay, here's a war, and this was um, won very decisively by one side, right away you're going to have to start thinking as a designer, okay, do I think that that was the most likely outcome, or do I think that was a fluke, or it was a 50-50 shot and it could have gone either way? I find is that there's so much complexity in the formal sense in military history. There are small events that have very big effects and set the narrative down one path or another. You know, if you, you, know, you march right or you march left on a single day might have a very big impact on what happens next, who, you know, meets in battle where and who gets defeated, that it's actually relatively easy to construct alternative narratives that are plausible that end up with different events so that so that you can in my view realistically offer players okay yes one side was ultimately decisively defeated but there's so many things that could have gone differently along the way and now that's in your hands and you might come up with exactly the opposite result and it will still feel like you were there like it really was set in that period Interesting. Wow, I yeah, I never thought of it. I never thought of it that way to now actually consider when yeah, to actually consider when you do uh, a game like that go, well, this is the historical result, but should it have gone that way? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned uh your own gaming. I'm curious as to uh what what do you play regularly? So, I um have uh, not not as much as I would like to play that's not my own stuff. Um, so the situation I've been in is when I've played, it's mainly been to test and, and develop and, and promote my own thing and not so much for for just enjoyment, which is, which is unfortunate. However, uh, just recently I retired. Uh, so now I have the opportunity to um, design games, play games, and have a life, all three. So... Uh, so right now, for example, um, I just started digging into a very meaty war game called Silver Bayonet. By, oh, yeah, the Vietnam uh, game. Vietnam, exactly, 1965. So it's operational level. So I've kind of got this thing for operational level at the moment. Operational level Vietnam. So you're, you're, you know, each turn is a day, and you're in the Central Highlands, uh, and the Americans are flying helicopters around, and the... Uh, the NVA is sneaking around in the in the uh, in the jungles and so forth, and that game is um, quite involved, quite detailed. 
uh, and if you play the campaigns can be quite lengthy. Uh, and it's a game that I, you know, I that came out in a absolutely gorgeous, you know, 25th um, anniversary edition a few years back. And it's just been waiting for, for me to retire and, and start playing it. So I've got that going um, in my basement while I've got my kind of design work going on uh, in, my, in my upstairs game room. So that's just an example of I, um, I come from, a, you know, the old, old style hex encounter hardcore war game tradition. And I still, still have a love for that. Today I played um, on the other side of things. I played uh, Crusader Rex. Uh, with uh, my brother-in-law came over, um, my favorite, at least currently favorite, um, block game by Jerry Jerry Taylor. So a nice, quick, um, somewhat, again, somewhat operational scale medieval. It's a little more strategic than Living Campaign series will be. Um, but a, just a lovely, quick, very finely tuned block game about the Third Crusade. So I had one more question about the coin series. Um obviously it's it's kind of your baby and it's grown um maybe beyond what you even thought it could be who knows uh, oh, well, sure. you do. <laughs> um, yeah. but it's, it's as it expands do you see it there's obviously throughout history a lot of conflicts that still fit into i like the way you described it where an internal war within a country but now it's for example uh we've got the gandhi game coming out and I was talking to someone about the coin series and they're like, wait, you've got to, you're going to play a Gandhi war game. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this is how it works. And how far do you see it expanding? Do you see it expanding to the point where you've got the bones of the coin system where it's no longer counterinsurgency games? Well, I think we've already done that. Uh, if we look, for example, at Pendragon, um, which I is, a heck of a game. <laughs> I, I'm yeah, absolutely in, in love with with Pendragon. Yeah. It, it uh, is. And I mean, I fell in love with it when um, I, I I first saw it, and uh, and and that didn't end over. I mean, that was two year two years of work, and I'm you know I don't sign up as a developer just just sort of randomly. So yeah, so if we look at Pendragon, for example, um, there's not really insurgency in it. I think. I, I've made the argument for Falling Sky, which is the game about Caesar and Gaul, that one can think usefully about the Gallic fight against Caesar, particularly in the second half of the war, as, as insurgency of the day and, 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 and the Romans tactics as a style of counterinsurgency that is rather different than counterinsurgency today, but nevertheless meets the definitions. I, I don't, you can't really make that case for Pendragon. Pendragon is about raiding and counter-raiding and an internally divided Roman imperial defense system that is creaking and cracking and coming apart as the raiders establish settlements and expand their own kingdoms. And a magical thing about Pendragon in the series is like, unlike any previous volume, it tells a story of the transformation of a, of a system, of a political and military uh, and economic system from imperial Roman diocese to dark ages proto kingdoms on the island yeah so, so that what's happening on the board is very different in the beginning of the full scenario than than where you end up at the end in most games and none of that really is counterinsurgency but it's a splendid story that is is i think um un unveiled 
very artfully with the same core mechanics of command and special action um, feats, they're called menus, uh, and the same um, interaction of event cards and initiative as in most of the other games. But then if we go behind that, the core engine, I mean, if we look at what Brian trained and how he adapted um, the core engine to two-player play, mm-hmm. and what we're about to see uh, after Gandhi, we have All Bridges Burning uh, about Finland from Vezar Ponen and People Power about um, the fall of Marcos in the Philippines from Ken T. Both three-player games, independently designed, two different design and development teams, independently designed, both taking the coin series to three-player format with different mechanical solutions to how to do that, different from what Brian did for two-player and different from one another. They all have a coin-like experience, but, you know, I don't know, there's no sort of boundary line there that says, okay, if you take this step in terms of your design to this topic or that mechanical step, it's no longer coin series, right? And how far can that go? It really just depends on the on the interest of the players. At some point, there must be a well, okay, this is enough. You know, these are these this is enough to choose from. I don't see a reason to uh, look at a different volume in what you're calling a series. Uh, we ha- we haven't hit that yet, but we will at some point. And I and, but in the meantime, the idea is, don't be samey. Right. We 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 want to give you a reason to have a look at each new volume. Every new volume has to tell some different kind of story and mechanically give you something fresh. Otherwise, you know, why? Why put the effort into it? All right. If there's one game out of the coin series you could recommend for someone to to sample the system, Mm -hmm. which which one would that be? So I'm not allowed to ask uh, what is that person like and what period they're interested in. Or <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair question. Uh, let's say an experienced board gamer, an experienced mm-hmm. war gamer. You know, mm-hmm. they're you know, uh, let's just say that, and they're just kind of they've heard about the coin series, and they're like, well, I don't see a lot of combat there or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not for me, but I want to try it because I hear so much about it. Which one would you recommend? Right. So if I put together in that the phrases experienced wargamer and combat, if that's what they ask, I'm probably going to direct them to either Pendragon or Liberty or Death because those are the two games in the series that have the most uh, articulated combat systems in them. Maybe Falling Sky. Uh, And then I'd ask, well, you know, experienced how experienced if you were really experienced and you were really ready to jump into a nitty-gritty game I'd, I'd say pendragon less so i might direct you towards falling sky which is probably the most accessible of that trio that are more military that is marching around and fighting big battles happens a lot in those three games and little there really are very few really big battles in the other um, another important criterion might be what period interests you. I, you know, if you're into modern stuff, I wouldn't direct you to any of those, even if you were an experienced uh, war gamer. You know, I'd, I'd direct you to one of the modern. Right. Like if I just go back, well, La- Labyrinth not being in the coin series, but but like Labyrinth oh. or the modern. Distant plane. Yeah, so a distant plane. So 20th and 21st century 
are um, the games on Colombia, Cuba, Afghanistan, Vietnam, uh, Algeria, and as and Gandhi is coming, as you, as you mentioned, uh, and I and would be one of those. If it were just if I had no information at all, then I would probably simply go to what's I think the most accessible, that is the quickest to get into and see what it's like, and then put it aside if you don't like it. And that's that's probably Cuba Libre. Yeah, which, I've. That's the one that I use to introduce people to the coin system. Yeah. I've got a, a friend that's just not a war gamer at all, but he likes games and he's a good friend. And he sat down and I taught him Cooper Libre pretty quickly. And, you know, then I wanted to play something else. He's like, no, let's play that Cuba game oh, again. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And and it has the advantage that it's simply smaller. It has the yeah. few map spaces, the fewest pieces, but the same mechanics that you'd find in, in Andean Abyss or a distant plane by and large. It's just a smaller package, and that just makes it that much easier to to get a handle on what's going on in the beginning. It has my vote for best artwork. Cuba Libre? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I, I like it. It's very bright. It's very colorful. It's very indicative of, like, propaganda posters, mm -hmm. you know, from the period. And, yeah, <laughs> I just I dig it. I like that artwork. So the artwork on the boards for most of the volumes is done by Chechu Nieto um, Sanchez, and I just absolutely love his stuff. And now um, Terry Leeds has come in for Liberty or Death, and people have reacted um, really well to his um, artwork as well. So, yeah, I'm very happy with, with all the boards, actually. All right, Richard, do we have anything else that you could think of? The only other question I had, um, just briefly, as I was looking you up, um, I had not heard about this game, apparently, that you have upcoming called uh, The Hunt for El Chapo, Kingpin. Ah. Kingpin, the hunt for El Chapo. So is that a moderated game? <laughs> it is, um, and it's not—it's not coming up, at least not for me. So the okay. story of of Kingpin is uh, is that it's a co-design of mine done for for the the U.S. government. So it is not a commercial design, and its purpose is—it's not a—it's not a, a hobby game. Its purpose is as a training game, as an analytic training game that we decided uh, would be uh, you know, helpful to share with, the, share with the public. And so we brought it out to some ex exhibitions such as South by Southwest. And eventually there was a Freedom of Information Act request for that and some other games that we had shown. And that, that request was answered with a lot of um, materials about the game, including development um, documents, and you can see some of my handwritten notes on old drafts of rules and the like. Anyway, so it is out there, but not as a commercial design, and it is a moderated game. That is to say, you need to have a referee to play it by the rules, has hidden information and screens, and a referee who's moderating it. And it, because because in the classroom, the, the 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 setting that the game was intended for, we have that. We have facilitators and instructors and we're playing the game to make points about analytic technique. And so it's absolutely, it's readily viable and productive to have a referee. If it's, you know, here's a game and the two of us are going to, you know, sit down, two friends are going to sit down at lunchtime to play it, it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. My uh, local gaming group, uh, we, we were talking on our BGG forum about moderated games recently and I was just I've never played one and I'm fascinated by the idea of them just because it's the only way you know you can do 
concealment counters or whatever else, but it's the only mm-hmm. way to really do fog of war is to have a moderator. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are many, I think, very effective fog of war systems. I was just mentioning Columbia Block Games, for example. It's a very, yeah. you know, very elegant fog of war system. But yes, it's it's much easier to design much more into fog of war if you can if somebody is willing to be the be the referee. And it's it's like a very common practice in in role playing games. Of course, you know you have a dungeon master, or a game master, or referee, and they know some information, and they're sharing information as the narrative calls for with this or that player, with this or that role player. And apparently having a great time because that hobby, that sector of our hobby, if you will, um, is going great guns after after many decades. So I think it can be a, a fun thing. And there are um, there's a there's a Lee Brimcombe Wood air game, isn't there, in which one side is really just refereeing and is not actually playing. I'm trying to think. Is that Night Fighter? Possibly. Ooh, I think it's Night Fighter if I'm not mistaken. But if you look at uh, Liebrinkum Wood's air games for GMT games, one of them, one player is flying uh, is flying the, the aircraft and the other player is, is simply refereeing the situation. Interesting. How well the other player will do, yeah. I think it's, I wanna say it's Night Fighter, but I'm not sure. Is it Night Fighter Ace Air Defense over Germany? That's 2018. It's published by Compass Games. No, I think okay. it's just called Night Fighter, and it's a it's a few years older than that. Maybe 2014, 2015, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking on the GMT page. I see a Night Fighter digital game. It's a you know PC game. I wonder yeah. if that's the same one. The on, on oh yeah, there's one by GMT uh, that was in 2011. Yeah, the designer was Lee Dash Wood. Yeah, Lee Brimcombe Wood. Have a look at that one, and that might be the one I'm thinking of. That is, in fact, a it's a it's it's one player, one person moderates, and the other is actually flying the planes and trying to. I think I think the uh, I think you're flying uh, the fighters, and the other player is just moderating what's happening rather than fly because it's not all that interesting to be the bomber. I think in that situation, it's yeah, like, right. I mean, the bomber kind of just flies, goes to its target, shoots at things that come at it, whatever. So the interesting part is trying to intercept the bomber as it's coming through, the, or the stream of bombers is coming through. And so I think faced with that situation, what, what Lee did is he decided it would be fun enough. If the game is short enough, you can always play it and switch sides and both, both players get a crack and they're competing uh, in terms of their performance. I think the, the, the idea was then what's interesting is trying to set up your intercept of this bomber you know, to shoot it down, not flying the bomber straight ahead. Fascinating. Yeah, that one, I'm actually on the P500 for a digital version of it. Uh, okay. And, and you know, I didn't know that there was going to be it, but it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Since now that, you know, if there's a digital version, you don't need a referee. The computer obviously takes over that function, right? So that makes sense. So, yes, if everyone could real quick head over to GMT, get on the P500 <laughs> for this, we can all enjoy it. No objection. <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's uh, about it. It's been a great interview, very informative, and um, I've learned a lot. I have not personally played the coin series myself, but there is a local guy who's always trying to get people to play Andy and Abyss, and I think I will now seek him out and give this a shot. 
Well, and you and I can play uh, Colonial Twilight on Vassal, too, if you want some time. Oh, yeah. I forget about Vassal. I always yeah. forget that I now have. I know somebody that knows Vassal. I forget. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I'm a big fan. Yeah. In and... fact, I think I think that uh, Coin was one of the reasons I got into Vassal in the first place. And now I use it for mostly Coin and also ASL. And also, if you're if it's two of you to play on Vassal, I mean Colonial Twilight is not your choice. But I just will point out, you can play any of the games actually two player. Um, Liberty or Death, in my my view, works especially well as two player, where each of you takes two factions, um, and 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 fights out the war. And so the all the games are built to handle anywhere from one, you know, from solitaire to the to whatever the max number of players is, which in most cases is four. So one, two, three, or four players. Yeah, we played a game with, uh, I played with three other guys of uh, a game of Fire in the Lake a couple months ago where we played as two teams of two. Mm-hmm. And I loved the, it was just such an interesting way to play that I had never played before. So yeah. that lends itself really well because the Americans are spending the South Vietnamese money anyway. Right. It's it's interesting to hear that because um, that's another that's one in Liberty Death also um, where there's some controversy over the, you know, the representation of history and really was it really foresighted to this degree? Was there that much friction? And so there's always that option of saying, well, if you don't like to have so much friction between the allies on each side, play as teams, you know, yeah. because you each have your own role, you each have your own moves you can make. You're all, you're going to have your own opinions about what to do, but you win or lose as a team. It works, I think, perfectly well. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking out your time to uh, give us a uh, call and uh, talk to us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I, thank I, you I very much. It was a pleasure. And we're back. Fantastic interview from the guy. Um, I have to say, I can't tell you how many people that I know personally approached me as like, you got that guy? Why didn't you let me sit in an interview? I'm like, uh, I, did, I, I didn't know, man. It was my co-host, Rich. It was like his yeah. thing. I don't know. When you threw out uh, who would you like to interview, he was the name at the top of my list. And it was like, well, yeah, I would love to interview him. I don't think I'll be able to, but yes, I'd love to. And so now I can't believe I actually interviewed Volker Runke. He's a, he's a, I'm, I'm a big fan. We'll just put it that way as I look at all the coin games up on my shelf. <laughs> and he was so nice. He was so nice and approachable. He was like, "Oh yeah, he, sure." When you he really was. Right. He was fascinating. I was just too Love starstruck Taylor. by him to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roy, Roy was there, but couldn't say anything. <laughs> All right, so moving on to news, and the the first thing we have as of this podcast, man, this is the hottest. This is the most controversial thing in the world of board gaming right now. So it, it's funny because, you know, we're all, we're probably going to get known as the, the, the uh, podcast that, that makes fun of bad Kickstarters, but this is looking <laughs> like a legitimate scam, like an actual real hundred percent intentional scam. I mean, we've seen things before where people have taken your money and run. Um, we've seen things before where it has not happened for a few years and they finally gave the money back. More and more and more, the more you look into this, this is 100% intentional. I'm just going to steal some money. And they still have $167,000, even with all the yeah. people that have dropped out of it. If, if you're just joining us now, <laughs> we're, we're talking about Overturn Rising Sands. This is uh, the super controversial Kickstarter, and uh, yeah, uh, 
gosh. I my friend actually messaged me. I I had seen people talk about it on Twitter, just kind of casually. And my friend messaged me, and he just he didn't know about the controversy. He simply said like, you know what? I don't think this Kickstarter. It doesn't look right. <laughs> Something doesn't sound right. And so I go over to look at it, and dadgum, I would actually back this. This looks awesome. Yeah, they, they did their I, work. I, I, <laughs> Holy crap, that's a lot say, of it looks, it looks amazing. It is a Canadian Kickstarter, so your America, your your Trump dollars go far. you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I would back this in a heartbeat. But dadgum, so, many, this, so much stuff has happened. All right, so... The first thing that happened with this is this Kickstarter was posted and they just wanted thirty four grand. Thirty four thousand one hundred and eighty two dollars. Um the first thing that happened was they posted a sample rule book as part of their updates. And someone noticed that uh, they posted this on July eighth, twenty eighteen, and someone noticed that it was ninety percent plagiarized from the Massive Darkness rulebook, which is done by Cool Mini or not, if I believe. I, yeah, it is. Yeah, because I think Cool Mini has since sent like a cease and desist to these guys. I, yeah, I'm looking at the comments now, and that's the great thing about Kickstarter. You'll you'll have this in the show notes. You can read all this yourself. This guy Dean F. Wilson, the super backer that he is, posted ten examples of plagiarism. That were cut and pasted from Overturn to from Massive Darkness. And that's oh, funny, man, too, because when you go on a Kickstarter page, it's basically an advertisement. But because right. this is a Kickstarter page and not their website, they can't moderate the comments. So all comments yeah. are negative now, which is hilarious. Yeah, they, they cannot they can't delete it or, or you know anything like that. And uh, I know with the Massive Darkness thing... They did update and say something like, well, we contracted that out to a freelancer. He did that, not us. You know, we had no idea that he he would do that. He, he stole it. And um, my favorite, favorite thing out of all this that shows it's a scam happened today. And someone noticed that, like, their profile picture, their Kickstarter profile picture was something uh w- was taken from a uh clip art site <laughs> so they're not even real fucking people you, you know with this which i mean dad gum i was talking to my friend chris about this today and i was like well you know with the way things are now it, technically it's it's like you would do a bank robbery uh, imagine like if you're a grifter from jones county mississippi and you know a little bit about board gaming. You've got a little friend that could do 3D rendering and Photoshop. And you're like, hey, let's do let's do a million-dollar heist. Let's try for that. And so you come up with this whole thing, this whole bullshit campaign that isn't real. And you post all this stuff in here. And because, I mean, as of this, it's, it's $167,000. But I'm pretty sure it was closer to um, half a million yeah, at one point. I don't know how high it went, but it was much higher, yes. And a lot of people it, have backed out. But much, much for higher. whatever reason, still $167,000 as of now with three days to go. Oh, wow. This oh, you know what? I'm watching the number go down as we speak. Yes, 
you can watch it live. This is fascinating. It drops by itself. Oh my yeah, god! They yeah, just lost. Yeah, they just lost like seventy-five dollars, just like that. Wow. So, I, so this is great. Yeah. So, but I, honestly, this might get funded because at three days to go, they're at one hundred sixty-seven thousand. They need. They still need just thirty-five. So, imagine if you were this guy that wanted to run the scam, and you actually did this. You came up with all the stuff is fake. And what you're trying to do is scam people out of a million dollars with fake names, with fake uh, pictures, fake 3D rendering. You know, honestly, it might work. Given Kickstarter culture, it might fucking work. What's the buy-in for at the base level? Oh, the uh, let's see. Uh, you can do t- you can do ten in Canadian without a reward, or the minimum I think is thirteen. Like if I want a copy of the you- game. 117. Oh, 117. Okay. Which is 89 Trump dollars. I was about to ask what that means in freedom dollars, but. Yeah, in freedom dollars. That's 89 89 Eagle Tears. (laughs) And, um, yeah. It's the core box and all unlocked stretch goals. Fuck, I would do that in a heartbeat. I would drop that. That's a lot of bits. Looks, the figures, all this stuff looks so good. Yeah. It really, really does. So, and uh, yeah, I guess what what re- what I think is fascinating about this, and I didn't back it, so I have no stake in this except out of curiosity. But this will be a test of Kickstarter because it's not like this is being sprung. I mean, people have been talking about this for a week, saying, "Hey, this looks like a scam," and I'm sure that the, oh, they just lost another couple hundred dollars as we're speaking, um, but. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> this has been reported to Kickstarter. If these guys get away with, you know, whatever it's down to by, by then, if it's a hundred grand or whatever, that's going to hurt Kickstarter. Kickstarter is not going to be able to completely separate themselves from this. Even if they can legally, their reputation will be really hurt by this. You know, okay, I will say, devil's advocate here, all the people that are reporting it to Kickstarter... Honestly, there's nothing you can report because you haven't. It hasn't completed, hasn't finished. They have not agreed to make something, and then they didn't make it. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of the thing is you have to wait until it finishes, and then you don't get it, and then you report. Yeah. You know that's that's kind of the thing. So yeah, of course it's the comments are nothing but people like <laughs> drop your drop your pledges, drop your pledges. You know, you know, or do this instead. Blah blah blah. And I guess the scariest thing is like the company isn't commenting anything. That's really the scariest thing. You would think they would just be like vehemently denying and shifting blame. You know, anything trying to salvage this. If it was real, this is gonna, yeah, we're gonna have to have an update on this. I'm, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will talk talk about this. Uh, of course, by the next time we record, we will know if this is is funded or not. I have it saved in my Kickstarter. I guess I'll get the notification in a day that hey, you've got 48 hours to back this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll toss like you know. 10 eagle tears down and just see what I can get. Is there a $1 <laughs> level? I'll have to check. I'll bet a lot of people uh, pledged a dollar just to, just to keep a, an eye on the news at this point. No, 8 eagle oh, tears. Okay. That's what you got to put so, down. 
eight eagle tears or that is eight eagle tears is five it, uh, so that's one lincoln beard pullings and three eagle tears yeah so if it says i've never done kickstarter before it says make a pledge without a reward what does that mean then Okay, essentially what that does is it's either, hey, out of the goodness of your heart, you want to donate something, like you're this person's grandma or whatever, and you just want to donate ten grand, $10, sorry. <laughs> or it, it, it gives you an opportunity to adjust your pledge at, okay. at the end. If this is successful, you can then, it gives you a buy, it gives you 10 bucks and access to the store. Once it finishes, it's like, okay, okay it's successful. <laughs> now cha- you can change your $10 thing to $178. Okay. All right. Huh. Wow, yeah. The that, And speaking of, that's the Rebellion package. That's the Collector's Bots, the Dragon Expansion, all the stretch goals, and 450 people back that. So, Wow. Seems kind of sketchy. Eh, I I don't know, man. I, I, what sucks is this looks so damn great, and I'd never heard of it. I would have backed this. I absolutely <laughs> would have backed this. I think, you know, because just simply it's a lot. It's a lot for a little. Well, you still know. can. There's three days left. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. You're absolutely right. That's very true. This is that's very important. Um, and yeah, I don't know, but that's gonna be big news big news in the next week or so and we'll just see how it goes mm-hmm. but basically it's the the gist of it all is the cut and paste massive darkness rule book and my favorite comment has been it's like wow you think if they were going to steal a game they would have stole a good one uh, <laughs> yeah, so apparently people apparently people don't like massive darkness but i don't know i've just seen that comment several times and then the fake um profile pictures yeah and i think that's pretty shady so all right moving on to news um the next thing we had was a reddit uh thread i ran on to it was just the top five games according to board game geek of every year from the past 50 years and uh to me it's it's just kind of neat to see like you know well what was the top five games the year you were born so who's the oldest here? I'm gonna guess Rich. Rich, are you old? Seventy three was when I was born. That's not how old. Oh, I am. I'm the old guy. <laughs> I was born in seventy. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. So Roy, the top game was Panzer Blitz. Uh-huh. Out of that. And uh for Richard in seventy three, the top game was Hare and Tortoise. Yeah, I never heard of that one. How did it beat out Escape from Coldest? I don't know. I didn't realize Escape from Coldest was that old, though. Me, well, you know, it it is a pretty famous, uh, you know, historical event slash novel slash TV of the week slash movie <laughs> slash board game. You know, so it's just really really interesting to see, you know, it up there. And uh, for me, in 1976, I can't believe I'm the youngest one. Panzer Group Guderian. Yeah, I've got a lot of good stuff here. Like number two is Napoleon's Last Battles, yeah. three is Caesar Epic Battle of Elysia, four is Starship Troopers, and five is War at Sea. Can you believe we're all older than Ogre? No, <laughs> Ogre is seventy-seven. 
I would have thought that was older than that. Oh, yeah, I see it there, because, like, number one was Squad Leader. Yeah, man, I'm looking at these and, games. And Victory in the Pacific. Yeah, I love I love just looking at the trends on this. You go, like, in the 70s and then in the mid-80s, there are so many good war games in here. Before you start seeing the war games start dropping off the list, and obviously there's some Dang further gum. down the list, but 70s into the 80s, great time to be a war gamer. <clears throat> In 83, Upfront and Ambush were both released. Yeah. 81, Axis and Allies. I mean, that's that's the game that got me started on all this. Eat, poop, you and, cat from 1984. Yes, I, that's what I was going <laughs> to mention. I've always been fascinated by this because it's on all these lists and it appears okay. on Board Game Geek. Have you, you ever yeah. heard of that game? Either of you ever heard oh. of Eat, Poop, You Cat? Okay, no, so I have heard we're of all it. gamers. Sounds like we a German all, game. We were all, you know, of age to remember at this point, and I can I've never heard of that game in my life. No. <laughs> <laughs> I it is listed as says Eat Poop Your Cat does not eat sorry, Eat Poop You Cat does not comport with the BGG guidelines for what constitutes a game, but is kept in the database by popular demand and administrative fiat. <laughs> so there you go. It's a humor game, and yeah, it's it's apparently a thing. ASL comes from '85, and so does BattleTech. Yep. Dadgum, I was nine. And oh, World, in, World Flames. in Flames. Dadgum, I, I was nine, you know, when all that came out. Fury of Dracula's from '87. Merchant of Venus in '87. So is Blood Bowl in '88. Space Hulk is '89. Hero Quest. Yeah, damn. Yeah. The, the 80s were a really good time. Of course, you had no internet, so you had no way of actually meeting people Yeah. to do it. Then uh, you get... 93, Magic the Gathering. I absolutely remember when that happened and was such a big deal. And, yeah. So. could see the Euros coming in in the mid-90s. Pitch Car that we mentioned earlier dates from 1995. Hmm. Yeah. Catan. Oh, wow. Okay, Catan, Catan Car... Catan card game was 96. I didn't know it was that old. I didn't know Catan was that old. Carcassonne was 2000. Huh. This is an interesting, interesting. list. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we'll we'll have this listed in the show notes and you can see all these weird things and yeah, it it really really is interesting, nope. especially when you're like, how old am I? And you see, yeah, just look at what The other thing I just wanted to point out about this is notice that the top games are very recent. And I think part of that is because we always have kind of a cult of the new thing. Part of it is because, you know, games there has been an evolution in design of games where people take what they learned from old ones and put them on new ones, but it is very heavily weighted. You know, you look at number one game, Gloomhaven came out last year. Pandemic C if you look at 2015, they've got two and three, 2016 has four, six, seven, and nine. So very heavily weighted new games scoring higher. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way of things. It's not like, you know, People that re- may have really enjoyed stuff in 1968 may not be yeah. with uh, with us to vote for it. <laughs> but still, yeah, it's just fascinating to actually, you know, take a look at it. The uh, the top comment from Jaxus R. I'm just weirdly glad that during my lifetime someone made a board game called Eat Poop You Cat. Am I alone here? <laughs> yeah. Okay. We should. I mean, there you go. If we want to scam some people, we should come up with a million dollar 
Kickstarter for Eat Poof You Cat. There you go. Or, you know, we're going to yeah. bring it into 2018. You know, for 100. I'm not Adam Chance. I'm Alan Court. And yes, that's my yeah my name. And we will do this. Pay no attention to the case of beer um, stretch goal. Yeah, we'll do this. <laughs> Moving on, um, there's a Kickstarter for Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy. Are you guys familiar with Eclipse? It's a really popular 4X game. Yeah, so I've been talking about Twilight Imperium a lot lately, and from what I've heard, Eclipse is kind of a lighter version of TI. That's how it's been described to me. I've had people mm-hmm. tell me that, so... I've seen it. That, yeah. Never taken it off the game shelf yet from my FLGS. But yeah, they're finally doing a sick, uh, a second edition for um, a, well, it's the second dawn of the galaxy. And as of this podcast recording, they wanted a hundred fifty thousand. They are four. They're they're about forty grand short of half a million, with two weeks left to go. Mm-hmm. And looks like the base game. That you can get is a hundred bucks, and you know, I mean, I, I keep saying this with Kickstarters. I mean, at this point, there's no point in doing it because if, if the MSRP is ninety nine dollars, there's no point in you kickstarting it because this is going to happen. So it will go to Miniature Market, who will have it for eighty dollars, for seventy nine dollars. You know, probably shipped free. Or something like that. Yeah, I think the big thing is when do you want to play it? I mean, you look at a game like Gloomhaven; it's it's been out for a couple of years, and it's just now getting to the point where you can go and get it, and it's easily available. So, you you might have to wait a couple extra years to get it if it's if it's that popular. You know, I will say though, you have to be careful because sometimes. A Kickstarter will finish, it will be successful, it will finish, and then it will make it to retail before <laughs> all the Kickstarter people are, have been fulfilled. It happens. It does happen. And man, that would make me mad as hell, you know, if, if that happened. Yeah, a friend of mine was looking at a Kickstarter. I think he backed it, and I, I don't remember which one it was. But it was interesting because there were Kickstarter levels where, like, Forty-five dollars, we'll get it for you in July. Fifty-five dollars, we'll get it in you know June. Sixty-five dollars, they'll get it in May. So basically, they were sorting the print dates based on how much you had pledged for the wow. exact same game. Uh, that's pretty ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty ballsy. You know, these damn companies are getting out of hand. So uh, the next thing we had was War Cradle Games. This is their base out of the UK. And they have the, um, or I'm sorry, TTI Combat has, um, they have the license for Dystopian Wars. And War Cradle is doing a classics backlog of it. Basically, this is essentially a Forge World type version of uh, their game of Dystopian Wars, where you can order the older ships and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure they're print-on-demand, and will be shipped out to you as you buy them. But, uh, yeah, it's as we get closer to the rulebook, the new rulebook, the 3.0 rulebook that we've all been waiting on, I think I have two or three starters for uh, Dystopian Wars. Always thought it was neat, and I hate hated to see it go tits up, but, um, yeah, I'm not going to buy any of these <laughs> because I own a lot of them. <laughs> 
but I just hope it edges us closer to the next rule book so I can play my stuff. Anyway, moving on to um, one of the most popular Kickstarters right now is Cool Mini or Not, Cthulhu Death May Die. <laughs> <laughs> And damn it, I don't want to be known as like the guy in the podcast that shits all over Kickstarters, but damn it, they make it so easy. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, uh, this is the one I was talking want... about. Look at it. Two twenty, yeah. you get it in July. Two twenty five, you get it in August. Yeah, so two thirty, you get it in oh. September. God, what is wrong <laughs> with you people? Why do you do this? Why do you buy it? This is so wrong. Ah, uh, I've said this on Twitter. I've said this on Facebook, uh, you know, everywhere that has this has been posted. It's like stop giving people, <laughs> stop giving companies this money that can afford it. Okay, cool mini or not, can afford this. If they can't afford it, they're not the kind of people that you should give two million dollars to. I'll say that. So one, it's one or the other. You can quote me on this. They are either. I love how it's just going up as as I do this. That's really cool. I never knew Kickstarter did this. That's really weird. Okay. <clears throat> okay, somebody dropped their pledge and just adjusted it. That, that was neat. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So you should not give a company that can't afford to put this out but doesn't because you're a sucker and they want you to prepay for it. Money. But if they can't afford it, then you shouldn't give them money because how can you trust them to, to, you know, spend your two mil? All right, as of this podcast, they only wanted $200,000, which, I mean, I think I would have bumped that to two fifty, you know, just to be even. But they just wanted $200,000. As of this podcast, they have received $1 million. Seven hundred eighty-eight thousand seventy-six dollars, and they have eight days to go. Almost two million dollars. Damn, that's a lot of money. Have you seen the Cthulhu mini? And it is okay, not okay, a mini. Okay. Uh, for, yeah, first of all, that thing is sold out, <laughs> and uh, I, I talked about it earlier with a friend of mine. Um, it it's bigger than a baby. Yeah, it's it's you know, two feet it's, tall, I think. Yeah, it's like two feet tall. If you're weird, you can put this on the mantle. (laughs) I know. That's what my friend was saying. It was like, what do you do? It's like, hey, Deacon Deacon Smith's coming over. So can you take the Cthulhu, uh, you know, thing down off the mantle so he doesn't think we're pagans? I actually have a Cthulhu figure from uh, WizKids. Is it two feet tall? Well, it's about the size of a basketball. Wow. That's pretty big. Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, it's this thing is enormous. It, it's got all these figures and stuff like that. But yeah, this is this is really shaping up to be a two million dollar um, Kickstarter. Man, do you guys remember like the Ogre Kickstarter hitting a million dollars and everybody was like, "Oh my god!" It's like that was the most successful Kickstarter of all time. Yeah. Man, that thing was so big and blah blah blah. And yeah, wow. <laughs> and here we are. A successful company is about to do this. Two million dollars. The minimum you can do this, is, the base game is a hundred bucks. 
And, okay, that's without seeing a rule book. That's without seeing a play. You know, anything like that. You are blindly buying this thing based on just subject matter and stuff like that. And it's supposed to come out in a year. But, come on, that's not going to happen. It'll probably be next December. And you paid for this. Uh, yeah, you prepaid for this. 100 bucks. 5,136 of you paid for this <laughs> you know I, I don't know I, just, I don't understand but I mean I guess yeah you're not hurting anybody if you're that damn dumb to pre-order stuff that a company could buy this I cannot believe the the people that defend them though in, in like the comments you know it's never a company official it's always like Joe Schmo uh, you know cool mini or not Kickstarter supporter He's like, yeah, uh, that's the only way they can make these, man. You know, you just can't make these and put this in Target. You know, and I'm like, well, I don't expect well, not them to Target, be in Target. Not Target, but Miniature Market Game Night. I mean, this is going to be at Miniature Market. Ooh, yeah. I just I'm scrolled like, down too far, and now I'm looking at Cthulhu's butt, so I'm going to scroll back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Cthulhu's butt make me nuts. <laughs> It just went up another hundred dollars as we're talking this too. This is ridiculous. Um, yeah, I just yeah, come on. Yeah, it just makes me want to do a scam Kickstarter. It does. <laughs> I can completely understand why the people we talked about earlier are trying to scam you for money when people are willing to do this. Ugh. I yeah, I I completely understand because people are willing to just prepay and do this. Yeah. Okay. What? Whatever. All right. You know, I guess it's not hurting anybody. But it, yeah, it just makes me laugh that this is this is a thing with the big giant cthulhu and 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 yeah so yeah that's been really people this is the other kickstarter people have been talking about lately mm -hmm. <laughs> so <sighs> moving on to fantasy flight games has previewed the defenders of the empire that is the little red caped guys the imperial royal guards for star wars League. yeah and who do they guard and they've also <laughs> coming out with Palpatine. That's right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, big news for Legion. They have a couple more announcements. We've got Royal Guards coming out for the for the for the bad guys. I can say that since I play Rebels this time, and uh, <laughs> also Palpatine. So, it's interesting to see uh, Palpatine on the battlefield. We'll see how that works out. He's going to be really expensive. People have looked at Fantasy Flight lights to give little views of the card where you can't quite see everything on the card. So he's going to be pretty expensive to put on the battlefield. And obviously, it's always going to be fun. If I can if I can swing my airspeeder past him and shoot Palpatine and kill him, that'll make it worthwhile even if I lose the game. I'm waiting to see some more Rebel <laughs> news. It seems like Fantasy Flight has been always announcing... Imperials first and Rebels second. So hopefully we're going to see something pretty big for Rebels coming up pretty soon. Well, if I ever see Wookiees, I'm in. Well, a lot of people are speculating that that's going to be the next Rebel announcement is uh, Wookiees. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I will say people have been talking about the height of Palpatine in this and comparing him to the old uh, Star Wars Yoda figure. Oh. Just being a little yeah. short and hunched yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> He's just missing the cane. <laughs> so, yeah. 
But yeah, eh, I expect lots of force lightning and and whatnot. Oh yeah. Which kills me. It's like okay, I post this on our local store's Facebook page. Like hey, yeah, you know, and all the people that bought Legion are like, ooh, this is awesome. I'm gonna buy this, but still haven't played a game in the store. Still haven't played a game. Period. <laughs> You know, yeah, you know, I have not been it, able to it, the last few weeks, but hopefully this Tuesday I'm going to get back out there and play again. It bothers me, but I mean, honestly, I, you know, it's it's kind of what you expect. It's not going, you know, you're competing with Games Workshops, 40K, and uh, Age of Sigmar, and, and, and whatnot. But I was curious to see, as popular as Star Wars is, how it would do. And, uh, yeah, okay, we're nowhere near even... Okay, not a lot of... We don't have a lot of X-Wing players, but we are nowhere near X-Wing popularity at this point, at least locally. Yeah, it's so. it's having little trouble gaining traction here in St. Louis, but hopefully it'll it'll continue to grow, because I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm dying to play it. I, I, yeah, I'm having to restrain myself from buying more figures. I want a whole, like, snow troop, <laughs> uh, force and, and stuff, you know. I want all that. But, yeah. Ugh. Anyway. So, moving on to the last thing we had in news was that first details have emerged on the Battlestar Galactica Starship Battles. This is coming from Ares Games, which does Wings of Glory, so I'm assuming it's going to play the same way, which, honestly, that's X-Wing, which I feel like stole the mechanics yeah. for yeah. that. And uh, there you go. So uh, I just don't know if, you know, have we moved far enough away from Battlestar Galactica that people just don't care anymore? I'm, I'm just curious to see. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, it was obviously, man, how long... How long ago did the reboot come out? That's got to be what ten years now. At least, yeah. It came in, man. It was so big. Right after nine eleven. Oh kind wow! So even more. One. Okay. Yeah. So. I kind of captured the other that thing paranoia about this is, of. Yeah, go ahead. Two thousand four. Yeah. Oh, okay. Two thousand four to two thousand nine. X Wing has. So, golly, that was fourteen years ago. Yeah, X Wing has an almost unlimited number of ships. Whereas Battlestar Galactica really doesn't as far as types of ships. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe they're not going to worry about having a million different unique models and everything. But, you know, if they want to make money, that's how FFG makes money is by putting out new ships for X-Wing. Mm-hmm. That is true. They could just put out like a starter and a couple expansions and just call it yeah. a day. But I cannot imagine that license is cheap. So I don't know. That's a good point. I don't know what they're going to do. Man, it's, it, to me, it's hard to describe to people nowadays like how big the reboot of Battlestar Galactica was. I knew people that didn't watch sci-fi, you know, that didn't care anything about stuff like that, that were just absolutely addicted to that show, that could not wait until Saturday night or Friday night or whatever it was for it to come out. It, yeah. Well, it a lot of great enormous. characters. Oh, yeah. 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 It, it was well acted, you know, all that stuff. And, of course, I argue, I'm jaded. I am jaded. And I argue with, like, hey, you know, at a certain point, stop watching it and pretend it got canceled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my thing. It's like, hey, when those guys start hearing a radio signal. And they're like, ooh, what is this radio signal? I'm like, just immediately turn it off and yeah. pretend it got canceled. 
and you'll you'll enjoy it more than the rest of us that watch it to the end and we're furiously anger, angry. I still don't think I've seen the last like two episodes because I was just like, uh, nah. I'm really? Not. Yeah, I have. <laughs> I've seen it. You don't want to watch it. It's terrible. But yeah, I mean, for me, it was really cool to see him bring in like uh, what's his name from Quantum Leap, you know, back. Yeah, Scott Bakula. You know, and. and, and and doing all that, and uh, Baltar was fantastic, and uh, what's-his-name that um, has made a career off of Battlestar Galactica? Oh, Richard Hatch. Uh, (laughs) Well, no, okay, they brought him back, and he was excellent in it, absolutely, you know, he was excellent in it, and uh, now I was thinking of the guy that played the lawyer in it that's now a Supernatural. Oh, that uh, he was in Firefly, the um, Mark. Yes, Mark something. he was. Uh, he was Badger. In yeah. Firefly. Oh, that's right. Mark. Yeah, that's right. His first name is Mark. I can't remember what his last name is, but yeah. Mark Shepard. Okay. Yeah, and I'm gonna fix all this. And then. <laughs> all right. I, he he has made a career now off that. He's been in like all kinds of little science fiction stuff. Oh, all right. But yeah, he he was great in that, and uh, yeah, it was yeah. To me, it's it's yeah. There hasn't been anything like that in a while. I guess the closest thing now has been Westworld. But instead of like me like rushing to work to talk about it with people I know, I rush to Reddit. And I'm like, what the fuck did I just watch? I don't understand <laughs> that episode. Somebody explain it to me. Yeah. That's been that. Like, well, when you see when that they panned over a peach, what that meant was this. And, oh, okay, I don't understand that. All right. <laughs> So anyway, that uh, I think that brings us to the end of our little uh, podcast, and we hope you stayed with us, and we hope you'll stay with us for the next episode. Go back and listen to us rant and rave about other stuff and whatnot, and yeah, I should probably talk less about um, Kickstarter, but whatever. Uh, Roy, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RoyToyCowboy, um, where I... I don't know. I'm on Twitter. Occasionally, I'm I'm crabby. <laughs> there are things and if you to follow me, I'll follow about. you back. Yeah, for sure. The wor- what is Grand Con? Uh, Grand Con is a another game convention I'm going to in September in Grand Rapids. Um, from what is it, September 14 through 16. Uh, so it's a small local con. It's kind of every year it gets a little bit bigger. Um, I believe that this year the founder of the 501st Legion is going to be in residence. I'm not for sure about that. I have a friend that's a trooper. Um, are people familiar with the 501st Legion? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so I think that he's going to be there. I'm not sure who the other guests of honor are at the moment, but I'll have more information as the time approaches. So, Brand right, Con. cool. Yeah. And... Rich, where can we find you? I've been more active on Twitter lately, trying to post stuff there as I'm playing games and whatnot. So on Twitter, on Twitter, I'm Trapeer Jr., and you can also find me at stlwargamers.com. Uh, last Saturday of every month, we are getting together to play war games. Although this month, I'm going to be at the ASL convention or uh, ASL tournament that day. So come find me there. Nice. I'm excited. I think it'll be cool. And, uh, yeah, I guess that brings us to the end. Uh, where I finally set up 
uh, Patreon. We're at Chance of Gaming, all one word, at Patreon, with different levels, because I don't know what I'm doing. I just threw some things on there, and we'll see how that sticks. Um, <laughs> I was talking to a friend today, and we were comparing different podcasts and board gaming personalities as to what they do for Patreon. And uh, we noticed one of them was bringing in four thousand plus dollars on Patreon. Man, if you guys give me four grand, wow. I don't know. I think I'd buy a car. Or something. <laughs> I could, yeah, d- yeah, I couldn't be trusted with four grand. But another one was bringing in like four hundred dollars, and I was like, wow, if I got four hundred dollars, I think I'd buy a. You know, I'd definitely buy like three or four board games more a month for sure, and maybe attend conventions. But yeah, four grand. I think I'd have to start paying Richard and Roy. That would only be fair. Yeah. So if you want them to be paid, donate me four grand, and I'll I'll work that out. I'd use my but, money to uh, buy yeah, a better we're... mic. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're there, and that's it. And uh, yeah, we're Chance of Gaming at Twitter, and tw- yeah, I talk with a lot of you guys on Twitter a lot. I'm probably more active there than anything. So there you go. So, until then, uh, they'll be next week, and we have an interview with, who is it, Richard? Uh, next week's Jamie Stegmeyer. From Stronghold Games, No, right? Stonemeyer Games. Oh, yeah. man, he'd be mad at me if I looked that. Right. Stonemeyer. Side, Side Culture, Charterstone. Yeah, I'll go fix all that in editing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we, we'll see you then. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Go out, go out and roll some dice.